Hello and welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes for the week ending June 19th, 2020. Uh, exciting week. We've got a lot to cover. Uh, this is video cast number 35, podcast 25. So as we usually start out, we're going to cover a little bit of the media spots this week and then go right down to the nuts and bolts of this week. First of all, I'd like to thank uh, Melody Hom and Susan Smith for having me on Yahoo Finance on Wednesday. And we're going to go through a number of the points that I covered. We talked a lot about institutional positioning and uh, outlook and sentiment and its potential implications moving forward for the market. We talked about uh, banks and cyclicals, so we'll cover a lot of that. If you haven't had a chance to view it yourself, you can just click there and watch it right at hedgefundtips.com. Uh, so thanks again to Melody and Susan Smith. Uh, next was on Monday, uh, Devik Jane and Meta Singh had me in their article on Reuters. And if you remember, I believe the futures were down and he was saying, well, why, why is the market down? My quote was, people are fearful about new cases rising, but at some point when you move 45% off the lows in such a short period of time, any excuse will do to have a nice consolidation of the gains, uh, said Thomas Hayes. So interestingly enough, how we started out is how we ended up this week. Uh, you know, fear of cases rising, and uh, an excuse to continue the consolidation range, which is thematic of what we're going to be talking about in this week's article as well. The uh, kind of two steps forward, one step back consolidation for the last uh, 50, I guess, three days now. Uh, so thank you to Medicine and Devik Jane for including your, me in your article on Monday. And lastly, uh, this was an interesting one in Bloomberg this week. Uh, Laura Hurst from Bloomberg, thanks for including me in your article. And all these you can just uh, view on hedgefundtips.com, click on Featured On, and then there's a link to take you right to Bloomberg or right to Reuters or right to Yahoo Finance so you can see the full text. Um, but this one was about BP, and this is actually a really good sign. BP took a $17.5 billion write-down earlier in the week uh, based on they took their expectations for prices of oil down uh, materially and then just uh, took the book, down, book value down of some of their assets, uh, paper loss. What it affects is debt to equity ratios, but uh, you're going to see in a minute how that played out. But my quote was, because everyone was saying, oh, that's the end of BP. They took a $17.5 billion write down. And my quote was, the BP announcement kitchen sinks it so that long-term investors can step in with much of the worst in the rear view mirror, says Thomas Hayes. So the point was that they were just basically cleaning house. Pessimism is so low, sentiment so low, it's priced in the stock. Now's the time to take it because you don't want prices to start to rise and earnings start to rise and then you're just pounding yourself taking these minor long-term impairments. Just take them all at once. That's exactly what they did. And sure enough, two days later, they raised $12.5 billion in the credit market, some type of hybrid secure, hybrid uh, 
uh, I think it was a convertible or, or, or debt equity uh, combo. But uh, yeah, they just they they kitchen synced it early in the week. That opened up the floodgates for them to raise the capital they need, and now they can just move ahead. And uh, as we're seeing, there were a bunch of articles out today. The rebalancing is happening much sooner than expected, and we have some data that we're going to point to that we also referenced in our article on Wednesday that we've been talking about for weeks and weeks, where we said, look, this OPEC cut is a bigger deal than people are. Uh, anticipating because it wasn't just two months. People were thinking it was just May and June. It was May and June, 9.7 million barrels, but they increased that again to 10.7 in the, in recent weeks. But more importantly than the nine or 10 for two months was it was the first time that you have a year and a half runway uh, starting in uh, July, it was to be 7.6. Now like it looks like it might be more than that. 7.6 million barrels to the end of the year. Then in January 2021, all the way through April 2022, another 15 mo uh, 16 months was going to be 5.6 million barrels. So that that rebalancing is starting to get priced in, and we saw um, Brent in the in the low 40s this week, and uh, I think that that trend is going to persist. So um, I think BP set themselves up really well by kitchen sinking it. You know, it's interesting. It, it kind of reminds me of what's happening with financials. Everyone is so fearful of them cutting the dividends. I wish they would just cut the dividends so the stocks could rally. Um, I'm not sure that they're going to have to. Randy Quarles put out a speech about the stress tests uh, that I tweeted out today. My handle on Twitter is at hedge fund tips. Uh, you can check out the speech there. But my takeaway from reading the speech transcript was that he was saying, he was basically saying that the banks have already done a lot to conserve capital through the COVID uh, by stopping buybacks in Q2. So my sense is that they're going to say, as long as you keep a short-term handle on the buybacks, we're not going to you know, force you to raise more capital or stop dividends. I could be wrong. We're going to get the results on the 25th. But I think regardless of what the outcome is, if they cut dividends, if they don't cut dividends, we just need an answer. Is that That's what the market needs, okay? So it's just as positive if they don't cut dividends as if they do cut dividends. We just need some finality so that... Um, you know, because they're they're trading at a discount to book. Ninety five percent of financials are trading at a, a yield greater than the ten year yield. They're sitting on a half a trillion dollars of cash, uh, so they're well capitalized. And so far, nothing close to what would be the worst case expectation out of COVID that people could imagine in March uh, has come to bear. Certainly, it, that does not dimin uh, minimize you know, all the jobs and all the deaths. It's been a tragedy beyond belief. But in March, it looked like it could be a Great Depression and had the policy not kicked in formulation and implementation with mass brute force, uh, we would have had a depression. But uh, policymakers learned from the past and they got ahead of the curve. And that's why we're seeing positive outcomes. And, and that's going to continue. So, um, uh, so I think this uh, BP story is a good model for uh, what could happen to banks next week after the 25th. And we used today and we used uh, weakness at different points this week to really um, uh, get material exposure uh, and to add to exposure. 
uh, in that sector. And um, we just want to get to see the finality next week, whether it's good news, bad news. It really doesn't matter. It's pricing in bad news right now. So anything that's less than um, it, either the news gets announced so you can sell the rumor and buy the news, which is what they've been doing, uh, or you get better than expected news, then it could just really be a, a, a rocket ship off of that, but um, looking at the way the yield curve steepened, which we've covered in recent weeks, the table is set. Financials over the next two years, two, three years, I think is going to be a, a fantastic relative strength trade. So thank you again to Laura Hurst for including me in that article on BP. Now to our key article of the week, which is the Drake Tuesday slide stock market and sentiment results. Uh, this week was my daughter's uh, sixth and eighth birthdays, so they're at the age where they like dance music, so I'm learning about all this stuff, including the Drake 2Z slide. <laughs> and what was great about the Drake 2Z slide is it was a perfect song to capture the theme of this week's sentiment and for the last 51 days because as much as it feels like we've gone straight up uh it hasn't quite been the case and we're going to go into that but the lyrics that represent the last now 53 days is it go right foot up left foot slide left foot up right foot slide basically i'm saying either way we about to slide can't let this one slide if you click on the video on YouTube here, you'll see effectively he's doing this dance, but he's going nowhere. And that's what the market's been doing. So, and it has a nice beat to it, so check it out. But um, uh, if you look at the chart below, you're gonna see that subsequent to rallying 35.5% in 36 days off the March low, that was the rocket ship higher that a lot of people missed. Um, you know, that was the, that was the huge move. But basically, for the last now 53 days, we've effectively consolidated sideways above this mean range here. And as of when I wrote this on Wednesday night, we were up about uh, 5% in now almost two months after going up 35% in a little more than a month. So this is effectively the 2Z slide. And we're consolidating and digesting these gains, getting new data. And the data is critically important because as I covered with Melody uh, Ham on Yahoo Finance on Wednesday, by and large, the vast majority of the data has dramatically exceeded expectations over the last couple of months, which is why we continue to rally and why the market continues to discount a constructive future. So this is the um, economic surprise index uh, yeah, the Citibank Economic Surprise Index. This is at record highs. Uh, this is just a, a phenomenal number. Uh, we saw, we're going to go through some of the economic data, um, but one of the other things you can look at here, not only do you have the Citibank Economic Surprise Index, this is the U.S. leading economic indicators, which we're going to cover uh, coming up. But effectively, if you look at each time that the leading economic indicators have gone from such a negative number, such a, a material trough where this is red, to such a high green instantaneously at that inflection point. 
So we're looking at just now that that's happened, okay? So we went from negative record, negative seven, seven and change, looks like seven and a half, to plus 2.8. That was this week, that print. The last time that happened, you went from negative, uh, almost negative four, negative 3.75 to positive 1.75. That was in 2009. That, that, that happens at the beginning of a bull market. Uh, that also happened down here in 2002. Went from negative, basically negative two to positive one. Deep red to green, that, that started the beginning of a bull market. So effectively recession to expansion. Uh, that doesn't happen at the top. That happens after you've had the crash. We had a 35% crash in March, albeit it was quick, but that's what we had. Uh, then it happened in 95. For those of you who were around, you remember everyone was worried that that was when things were going to roll over. The Fed did three quick quick cuts and extended the cycle. You went from negative two to positive one and you got another five years. Then you had the recession for uh, anyone in real estate remembers the early 90s was a real estate recession, but it also hit the market. You went from negative two to plus uh, one and uh, that was a very short-lived recession in 1991. Uh, and then the last time you had this was in the early 80s, which set up the 18-year bull market. You also had it in 74 coming out of that crash, etc. So this is a very good sign when the leading economic indicators go from very red to very green. It sets up multi-year rallies historically. So that's just something to bear in mind as we look at the economic data continuing to beat uh, as we covered with Melody Hom. Um, the next thing that we talked about was the outlook of managers. So each month, Bank of America does a global fund manager survey with about 200 managers managing half a trillion dollars. Um, what's interesting is after, you know, trough to peak, it was like 45%. It's come back a little bit. Uh, despite that huge move, 53% of these institutional managers still say the comeback from the March lows was a bear market rally. Uh, the last time, well, let, let's actually, uh, the last time that you had that level of uh, pessimism where you had the, a monster rally was from March of 2009 to August of 2009, the market S&P rallied 52% off the lows and everyone was calling for the same thing. And the reason that they were calling for the same thing is because the economic data was getting better, but not, not hugely better. So people thought that they were going to roll back over and take out the 666 lows on the S&P. Meanwhile, anyone who'd bought even after the market was up 50% did exceptionally well over the next 10 plus years. And I think we're in a very similar situation right now, albeit we have to consolidate such a huge gain in such a short period of time. Um, uh, this, is, this is the beginning of a new cycle that we're seeing and we're seeing it in the economic data beats. Uh, and we're seeing it in this level of pessimism. The market has to climb a wall of worry. If everyone believed that you know we were through the worst, we would we would be at a short-term top for for sure. Uh, Thirty only 37% believe this is a new bull market. So again, that's in line. Only 18% of investors expect a V-shaped economic recovery. Uh, net 46% uh, percent of participants 
in the survey expected a prolonged recession. Now this number halved. Last month, 93% expected a prolonged uh, recession in April. So the pessimism is thawing on some fronts. That's good to see. That's again, climbing the wall of worry. And 78% believe the market's overpriced. That's the highest since uh, 1998. And if you remember from 98 to 2000, it was about a year and a half to two years, you had about a 56% rally in the S&P. So, um, th so that is the kind of outlook and the pervasive pessimism that allows us to continue to go higher over time. <clears throat> That's not to say we won't have our mini pullbacks in the interim and be a little choppy, but the multi-year outlook is up. And this is also referenced in the position. Look at the positioning here. The top three, top four are defensives. Uh, U.S. cash is, is number two, healthcare, bonds. Those are the top three. Now, they did take down tech where we've been talking about the froth for the last uh, couple of months, they did take that down on a relative basis and they started to leg into cyclicals, albeit not in a material way, but you're seeing some action in commodities. So, so people are starting to buy into that story a little bit. Um, and also managers started to buy less popular groups such as small caps value and uh, Eurozone and emerging markets. As a matter of fact, I think, I could be wrong, I think emerging markets closed positive today even with all the volatility, that these are the type of things that you see. I, I you know, I know there's this great debate uh, about value versus growth, and you know, tech versus cyclicals. But it's not about that. It's about timing in the cycle and coming out of a recession. Um, and it doesn't mean that tech won't continue to go up. It's what we're looking for is relative strength as far as how we weight things and what we focus on. What performs best at what time in the cycle? Not, not all or nothing, um, but you know, r relative choices. So it was nice to see that this slowly starting to happen, despite them still being so defensive after a big move, which is good because that gives further fuel. The higher it creeps up, the more they have to chase in. Um, now, the other thing parallel, I just talked about that move from March 2009 to August 2009. The other parallel is that investors took cash levels down from 5.7% last month to 4.7%. And that was the biggest dash away from, tra from cash, as Bank of America called it, since August of 2009. So the last time this happened was after a 50% rally in a handful of, uh, from March through August. Now, after a 45% rally from March through June in this instance, um, we're having the same thing. And again, that was closer to the beginning of a multi-year rally than the end. Um, the rotation is also positive and the decrease in technology and moving into those uh, materials and energy and slowly but surely, not a big jump yet, but the beginning of that trend change that you see at the beginning of cycles. Uh, very positive news. Uh, a couple other things I just want to cover from the summary, and you can see this Bank of America Global Fund Manager survey summary also on the site under popular post. You just scroll down here, you see it was the second popular post this week under the Drake article that we're covering now. Um, the other thing that's very interesting is you're seeing a lot of people come out uh, saying that the returns for the next 10 years are going to be subdued. 
uh, zero to five percent. It was uh, I think sixty-seven percent of managers. Yeah. Uh, da, da, da. Yeah, 67% say the next decade will have an annualized global equity return of 0 to 5%. Uh, I'll take the other side of that because, um, number one, they said the same thing coming out of the 2009 cycle after the crash. Everyone's pessimistic in the short term. Number two, um, you know, we, we put on some emerging market exposure um, and the one thing that I thought very interesting when looking at the long-term emerging markets stock chart is that you can buy, um, first off, you can buy ex-U.S. equities at eight-year-ago prices today, even after the rally off the bottom. So you can get uh, Europe, you know, developed world ex-U.S. exposure for eight-year-ago prices, number one. Number two... Um, you can get emerging market prices for 13 year uh, emerging market exposure for 13 year ago prices. So what they're effectively saying is rear view looking what's happened in the, in the last decade is going to happen in the next decade. And history often refutes that the, the, the higher likelihood is a reversion to the long term trend line, which it's underperformed. As a matter of fact, I think I did something in one of these notes, maybe uh, somewhere in January. We took from the two, uh, from the March 2000 peak to the highest peak. I think it was in whatever we peaked, February of this year. You can either measure trough to trough or you can measure peak to peak. But it was something like, including dividends for the S&P 500, it was like 25 to 3% compound annual growth rate for the last 20 years. Uh, that pales in comparison to the last 100 years, which is over 8%. So in some sense, we've actually been under trend for the last um, 20 years. And where people get misled is they measure from the trough in 2009 to the recent peak and say, we can't sustain these type of things. But um, if, if you look we basically had a sideways market for 13 years. We only broke out in 2013. So when you revert back to the mean trend over the long term, we're well underneath. And as we revert back to have another 10 years, certainly on a global basis, but even on a U.S. basis, uh, if we re if we revert back to anything, it wouldn't be zero to five. It would be closer to the eight to ten um, that we've historically been accustomed to. Um, you know, dealing with the biggest most productive, biggest moat companies in the United States that are represented by the S&P 500 and have global exposure. So uh, I wouldn't buy into the, you know, new normal pessimistic zero to five percent uh, story on a global basis, because that's that's what we did in the last two decades, not necessarily what we're going to do in the next two decades. I'd be more in line to take a look at, you know, 82 to 2000, I'd be more inclined to look at 1948 when we were 120% debt to GDP, uh, similar to where we're going to probably be by the end of the COVID crisis. 
and uh, 1948 to 1968 was a huge secular rally in equities. We took the debt to GDP from 1948 to 1953 from like 120 down to 63. Same thing's going to happen. We'll grow our way out of it. Everyone's saying where we're going to get the money. We're going to get the money from growth. The Fed put out numbers. They're looking for 5% GDP growth next year after we come out of this. I think it could be more. We got 12% of uh, uh global GDP and fiscal stimulus. So there's a lot of positive things going on. And when you're kind of in the middle of the storm, it's hard to see that. Borrow my glasses here. Look, look at history. No one knows for sure. But if you kind of look how things perform after periods of long periods of consolidation, you know, there there is a tendency back to the trend line. And there's a lot of things in place that support that, among which in the United States, we've got 85 million millennials now doing housing. For, the most popular age for a millennial is 29 years old. They're starting families. They're now moving out to the suburbs. Uh, this is a very, very positive thing. Same thing you had in 82, same thing you had in uh, 52. Uh, so, Lots of good things happening on that front. Um, as far as managers, you know, this is the V shape and U shape. There's still a lot of pessimism there. Um, and the positioning we covered. Uh, the, the most crowded trade is still U.S. tech and growth. And the biggest tail risk, and that's why you saw a little weakness this week, how we started out is how we ended up, is the second wave of coronavirus with 49% of those surveyed citing as a top concern. So their fears, in some sense, were realized this week, as you saw spike ups in uh, Florida, California, and Arizona. However, if you look at cases, um, you can't see the end of this, unfortunately, but it's still trending down. Uh, yes, there were spike ups here. The healthcare system is now in a position to handle it, but obviously, uh, you know, it will be important for people to get the message, continue to practice social distancing. I think there's no downside to wearing a mask when you're in public places, uh, certainly indoor public places. I, you know, I just think it's smart business because if in, in many regards, if you're patriotic, you want to see the economy flourish. So why wouldn't you wear a mask inside so we can just get the economy just cranking and hit that five or six percent GDP coming out of this? That's that's patriotic, you know, so leave, you know, if, if it's become a political football or whatever it is. I mean, there's no downside to wearing a mask when you're around a lot of people and there might be material upside. Uh, certainly wearing a mask won't slow GDP and it might dramatically increase it. So I just say, you know, until we see cases across the board coming down. Certainly deaths are coming down. That, that's the good news. Uh, the healthcare system is much better prepared and they know how to treat it much better than they did two months ago. So as that death rate comes down and down and down, that, that will be very positive. That's gonna give people confident, confidence. We expected these little flare-ups in different areas. That, that's happened, that's gonna continue to happen. The healthcare system can handle it. But you know, if we all do our little part, Try to practice social distancing, you know, do it, you know, it's a free country, you can do whatever you want to do. But if you want the economy to grow, I think in crowded indoor places, it's a good thing to wear a mask for the time being uh, until we get past this. And that's going to just crank up GDP. So that is that. And uh, that's the tail risk. So um, the other aspect besides the embedded pessimism among 
institutional managers, even after such a huge move, is you're seeing, um, this was a new statistic, a material amount of people actually sold all of their equity holdings in March and April. And that's really sad. They probably got scared off by a lot of the, a lot of the media was very, very negative during that period. Um, and if you look at by age group, 25 to 30% of people from 60 to 70 plus sold 100% of their equity holdings at the lows in, in um, March, the March period, and uh, about 18% of everyone. So one in five people sold all their equities at the lows. Uh, this is sad. And that cash now on the sidelines is going to get forced in. The more it gets pushed up, the more they're going to get forced in. It's going to be very similar to August of 2009. After the market had rallied 50%, people just had to start to participate. And that's okay because in some sense, they missed a lot. But in the other sense, uh, you know, in, in the scheme of a multi-year cycle, there's a lot of room to go. Um, but this is all fuel because they'll just have to chase to meet their needs in the future and participate in this. And, and it's, it's just sad to see these numbers, but that's dry powder. The other thing you're seeing in terms of dry powder is money market funds. AUM has shot up since March to a new record. So looking at this chart here on Barron's, um, the last time it was even close to this was um, <laughs> right after the lows, again, a month, a month and a half after the March lows, April 30th of 2009. That was the beginning of the, the last cycle. And here we are a couple months after the lows, the beginning of the next cycle. And it's even the cash levels are even higher than they were in April 2009. And the time before that was, guess what? February of 2003, the beginning of that cycle. So, you know, all signs are pointing to this dry powder will have to get back to work and that leads to multi-year bull runs. Um, you have the uh, institutional money, you have the retail money, the money market funds, and all the people that sold out at the lows. Um, that's all gonna be fuel. The higher we go, the more of it's gonna, more of it's gonna be forced in. The other thing that we covered here quickly this week was the CBOE SKU index. Uh, you can read this, I put the definition, but basically the primary difference between VIX, which everyone knows, and the SKU is that the VIX is based on implied volatility. It's basically the pricing around at the money strike price options, while SKU considers the implied volatility on out of the money strikes. And when this number goes really high, it means uh, really high, meaning uh, it ranges between 100 and 150. So really high is above 150. It means that people are taking out, there's demand to take out insurance on tail risk, like some crazy thing happening. Um, now, the thing that's interesting about this 150 number is it precedes pretty much every single major crash However, every time it hit 150 doesn't mean a crash happened afterwards. So in other words, if you look back and you look at every crash, you can say, oh yeah, I see a few months before the skew had hit 150. But if you look at every 150, there wasn't a crash. So take a look here. Uh, in the last instance, in early 2020, the skew did hit 150 and we did have that crash in March. 
Uh, same thing in uh, October of uh, September, October of 2018, we had the December crash. However, in uh, October of 17, we rallied materially after that for another 90 days. Uh, same thing in uh, April, of, uh, I'm sorry, July of 2016. Here, you were coming out of it. So again, the point that I was making is we haven't even hit 150. So if we'd hit 150, I could say, listen, you know, uh, and look at all these instances in the high 140s were actually mid rally from 2013 to 2015. The market just kept going and going. They kept hitting. People kept betting on the end of world above 140 and the market just kept going here we just hit a peak of 137 it's more in line with what you see mid rally obviously you had these tiny little pullbacks 3 to 3 to 9% consolidations during the rally from 2012 to 2015 uh, just like we had the 6% pullback last week but um, there wasn't enough acute betting on tail risk and demand for that tail risk that would proceed um, a crash. And even if we had had that, then we'd have to take a look at, okay, a lot of people are betting on tail risk. Does it mean we're going to have a, a crash or does it mean that people are just worried and we're going to climb the wall of worry? So the point of putting this data point and this indicator in this week's report was to say that we're not even at the point where we have to decide what is that signaling? Is that signaling that there's just too much fear and we can climb higher? Or is that signaling that we're due for a real crash like we had in 2000, um, December 2018 and March 2020? And the last time would have been um, January of 2016. You had the 150 and then you had the 20%, uh, almost 20% pullback. Um, so we're not even at that decision point, and that was the point that I wanted to make clear because there's so much talk about rolling back over in a material way, and the numbers on this particular indicator don't support it. Now, we haven't asked me anything question this week that is going to talk about why we don't just rely on one indicator, but this one is an important one that I haven't touched on in previous weeks that I thought would be helpful. Now, I also did this as one of the indicator of the days this week, and I, I used an actual reading on the opposite side. I was using reads below 115 as contra buy indicators, and those reads work actually much more precise. So when you get above 150, you say, okay, people are worried, is it justified, and are we actually gonna get a crash, and it's you know 50-50 or 60-40. But when you get below 115 after the market's corrected, that's usually a pretty predictable buy point. And that's what we cover in the, uh, in the uh, indicator of the day video. You can have a look at that to take a look from the other side of the trade. And um, that's a pretty good indicator to keep in your arsenal. Now, continued signs of recovery this week. Credit spreads are coming down. You can see every time credit spreads come down, it's the beginning of a cycle, not the end. After the January 16 crash, spreads came down. After the December 18 crash, spreads came down, market rallied. Same thing after the Euro crisis, late 2011, mark, uh, spreads came down, market rallied. Same thing early 2009, spreads came down, market rallied, multi-year rallies. We're seeing the same thing now, spreads came down, markets are gonna rally, have rallied and are gonna continue to. Um, again, that never precludes the normal 
consolidation pullbacks, three to nine percent, like we saw last week. We'll probably have a few more of those that at some point this year. But um, you know, the the trend is the the foundation has been laid for on balance constructive things to happen uh, for for several plus years to come, and I think many many more than that. The other aspect, uh, obviously, we saw retail sales. What a huge difference from uh, they were expecting. Um, I think they were expecting plus eight. We got plus 17.7% off the charts, led by clothing of all things. You can take a look, clothing, furniture, and furnishings. So clothing was up 188%, furniture and furnishings up almost 90%, electronics and appliance, uh, 50%, motor vehicle parts, 44%, food and drinking up 30%, gas stations, people are starting to get out there, uh, garden and building, and grocery was only up 1.3, which is good. That means people are finally stopping to cook at home and they're going out. So that's a good thing for restaurants. Um, okay, also flatbed trucks went through the roof. Uh, the F-150s, that's a leading indicator of construction. That's a good thing. Um, next was shipping prices rebounded to pre-pandemic levels. A lot of runway there. And the death rates, this is more important than hospitalizations in new cases. Those continue to plummet. New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, we got hit the worst and we have managed it the best. And you know, look, I go to the supermarket, people are wearing masks. I know that's not the case in everywhere in the country. And understandably so, because when it's not so acute in your area, you don't really recognize the risk and the risk might be lower. It's certainly the case, but why not keep it that way, right? So indoor, I think it's a good thing. I mean, they're not comfortable. Uh, we, you know, we had the birthday parties with the girls. We went to this awesome restaurant called Bernard's, uh, French place. And, you know, we were outdoors, but you know, the girls still wore masks there. And then when you're eating, you take them off and it was fun. And it was, it was no big deal. What's easy to do is easy not to do, right? The form, difference between success and failure. It's easy to do. It's easy to wear a mask and it's easy not to wear a mask, you know, why not wear it until uh, things get better and let's just you know, grow the GDP like crazy and get everyone back to work. Um, okay, next, uh, the, we've talked about this at length in, in recent weeks about my expectations with regard to the impact of what the impact of the cuts would be over time. Rystad Energy put out a great chart here kind of laying out what, you know, we had this huge build from uh, January of 2020 all the way through May of 2020. And this is, this is the month that it inflects, June. Okay, so we took some, some additional energy exposure in a select name this week. Um, and if you just look now for the next year and a half, that runway with the long-term cuts and the increasing demand is gonna lead to monthly deficits of, you know, two to four million barrels a day moving forward, this is a huge secular opportunity like we're, uh, well, the beginning of a cycle, but I think secular meaning many years, but it's the beginning of this cycle. Like we saw, if you're wondering what could be a model for this type of behavior, I would take a close look at 2003 to 2007, what happened to energy demand. And also as we see emerging markets coming back online, um, the other thing that there have been a lot of people out talking about is a weakening dollar. That would be great for emerging markets. It would be great for this story as well. And um, 
And that's also consistent with, I think, three months ago in the survey, we talked about um, managers being in a having a sentiment not seen since the last time the dollar weakened by 30 some odd percent. I have to go back and look at that, but uh, it's finally starting to manifest. And that would be a very, very good thing for this thesis as well. It's constructive with the whole cyclicals theme we've been talking about for the last eight to 10, now it's 12, almost 12 weeks now since uh, mid-March. So finally, uh, the short-term general view for the market. This was the biggest surprise of the week in my view. The AAII sentiment survey result after a 45% plus rally was only 24.37% bullish. It plummeted from 34% last week, and that is historically a contra buy indicator. Uh, anything in the low 20s, obviously 20 would be like the miracle number, but anything in the low 20s has been a buy. And the bearishness shot up from 38 to 47%. Uh, a lot of bearishness came into the market. And that is, uh, you know, I, I actually went through the chart every time that the bullishness slipped below 25. And you can see, you know, these have been unbelievable buy opportunities when the sentiment gets that low. Uh, this one was a hair early, but what a move afterwards. Again, great, 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 great. It, it, I mean, here you got to bounce and roll over. So that one failed. But, but, you know, statistically speaking, and that's all you could ever do is have a statistical advantage. Nothing's ever guaranteed. But uh, I was really excited to see the pessimism get that high. I saw it in the Bamels, uh, Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey. I saw it in the cash levels. This confirmed it. And then, you know, the fear and greed index was at a neutral position, 51. We went from, if you remember, if you can look back at the notes, um, you can look back by just clicking on this right-hand side under categories on the website. You click on sentiment or commentary. You can see every note every week, you know, look it up next to the chart and you can, you can see how we tracked. Um, we were at zero in March and we were like, this is, you know, pound the table buy. We never got to this extreme where you want to start to lighten up, you know, over 80, 80 to 100. We never got to that euphoric level. And you can see it charted out here. Um, so to see this even come back gives gives us more room. You know, you hate to see things at like 70 when you're adding new positions to laggard sectors. It's nice to have that runway where uh, the sentiment can continue to grow with your position. So we definitely got that in spades. The National Association of Active Investment Managers, they puked out after the 6% pullback last week. Um, you know, someone asked me, I just want to pull that up this week because that number actually only changes once a week. And someone was asking me, uh, what, where it's at now. So let's see if we got an update. Uh, okay, so it's back up to 88. So they they puked out last week. Then then the market started to come back. They're back overexposed. So so that one's a little bit mixed, and that's why we never use any one indicator. So it's back up to 88 right here, and that can stay elevated as the market rallies. That look look here in 17. That that type of behavior happened, got all the way up to 100. So, so there is room there as well. Um, my guess is that they, you know, laid off some some risk today, just based on the intraday pullback, and then the Nasdaq closed positive. So, 
Um, so the, the message was basically the same. I, I said here last week, I said, um, we'll likely get some mini pullbacks. That was, I wrote, I write the articles on Wednesday night. The next day we got the 6% pullback. It was quicker and deeper than I expected, but these are opportunities. If you, if you're looking at all the things that happen at the beginning of a cycle, anytime you get weakness is a gift. And that's when you can add, you know, we're adding to cyclicals on all weakness. We had an opportunity today in banks. We added a little bit in energy and we're just going to keep building those positions because those are the type of stocks that do exceptionally well uh, coming out of the cycles. And then late, mid and later cycles is when tech dramatically outperforms, as we saw in the last couple of years towards the end of the last cycle. So we like defense stocks. We like home builders, energy, small caps um, and and banks. Now, if you did not listen to this last week, I would suggest you click on this Carly Pierce. I hope you're happy now to get familiar with the bank thesis. And I talked about it on Melody's show. The last two times that you had the 210 yield curve steepen this quickly were 2009 and 2003. That gives banks net interest margin, incentivizes them to extend credit, and that profitability drops to the bottom line. We have the exact same setup that we had in 2009 and 2003 when banks rallied dramatically for the next, uh, you know, in, in the last cycle, eight years, and in the previous cycle, four or five years. So we're at the beginning of that. Banks are cheap, trading at a discount to book, huge cash on the balance sheet, and the yield curve just steep. And not to mention the $20 billion of fee income from PPP that's going to show up in Q2 earnings that no one's talking about. That's going to offset a lot of credit reserves that banks are taking. That's already known and um and a good thing so um be nice if we got one last sell-off in banks maybe either before the stress test results or as a result of the stress test results you know maybe people you know view it as bad whatever and that'll probably be it i mean they're, they're just not gonna knock on wood but they're just not gonna get a whole lot cheaper from here so if you get a sell-off this week in the banks that's probably your last chance in for many years to get them at these prices uh discount to book just at the beginning of the cycle all right uh next thing we have the let's make sure we covered everything from this so we remain very constructive in the intermediate term. We'll take advantage of any additional buying opportunities in laggard cyclical names should they arise over the summer. And while we've been doing the Tuesday slide, the Drake song sideways for the past 51 days, we're now due to move out of the range. And I think that's going to be happening in, in coming weeks and months for sure. So that was the article of the week. We went through cash levels. Uh, what caused the weakness today? Actually, Devic called me from Reuters today. I don't know if that'll get in, in his article, but basically Apple announced that they were going to close stores. The headline was they were closing their, their retail stores in Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, and South Carolina. Market sold off 300 points. It recovered almost 100% of that, and then it just weakened a little bit into the weekend. That's normal. People don't want to go into the weekend with risk. But it, it, <laughs> it wasn't what the Bloomberg headline said. If you actually clicked and read on the article, it's 11 stores in four states. So you're basically looking at, you know, little less than three stores per state, not all the stores in four states. So uh, although it's not good news, it's not the end of the world. And likely it's someone who works in their store tested positive. So they're probably going to close it down, do the $40,000 cleaning 
and then open it back up. So it's probably less bad than, but, but the market, you know, because managers have that lurking fear, which is gonna continue to climb the wall of worry, second wave of coronavirus, you can see it right here in the table. Uh, when they get headlines like that, the algos sell off and managers get nervous. So that's, that's a good thing. That's how you continue to climb higher. You can't do the whole climb in one week. So um, we'll have these mini flare-ups. We expect these flare-ups. And um, we can each do our part individually. You're enclosed in, inside places. No downside to adding a mask. So that was that. Next point I wanted to go through was the economic data from this week. And I wanted to get into granularity. Why are we crushing it? Why are these, why are we beating it on every single front? So first off, the, the Baker Hughes rig count this week, rigs dropped another 10 rigs to 189, low prices, cure low prices, down from 1,600 rigs in December of 2014 at the peak. So if you don't think energy prices are going up in the next couple of years, and you know you don't think there's going to be any inflation whatsoever after Clarita got on and said today on Liz Clayman's show we're not even thinking about thinking about lowering our inflation target of over two percent. They're going to keep the pedal to the metal uh, with stimulus and whatever is required to get everyone back to work. Uh, the other thing that he said, which was really good for the banks, is that she asked about negative rate policy, and he said. 17 members in, in, in the last minutes uh, said that negative interest rate policy was not a good idea. That view has not changed. So uh, they know not to do negative interest rate policy because they see what a zombie economy looks like in Japan, which did negative rates, and in Europe, which did negative rates. If you want to destroy banks and you want to destroy the extension of credit, which is critical to, to a recovery and to an expansion, the surest way to destroy an economy and, and destroy banks is to do negative rate policy. These are smart people who have studied history, which is why they got ahead of the curve this time versus in 2008 when they were behind the curve. They got ahead of the curve with policy. They, they know what negative rates is. They're not going to do that. They'll purchase as many assets as possible. They'll do yield curve control. They have a forward guide they've got a number of tools negative rates is not one of them that's great for the banks and that's also the reason banks have been trading down people have been worried about that they're not going to do it in the united states so uh and that was confirmed uh other data leading index we we just covered that was um from negative 6.1 to positive 2.8 this week the initial jobless claims, if you take a look here, were uh, they missed expectations. They were supposed to be 1.3 million. They were 1.5, but they were still down from last week. And I think this is uh, Heidi Chung from Yahoo puts this chart out every time there's a report. And as you see, this is continuing to slope down in the right direction. So it's flattening a little bit because you've had such an abrupt improvement. So this will be a little choppy now as we continue lower. So the trend is your friend, and that's going in the right direction. Same with continuous jobless claims. Still, you know, missed expectations by a bit, but still improving month on month. Uh, next, uh, we had, oh, we had the oil. So Cushing was a big draw. Um, we missed expectations. We were supposed to have a modest draw. We had a build of 1.2 million barrels. That's residual. However, we're down from a build of 5 million last week. So this is all trending in line with 
what we talked about in the recovery data, which is this is going to this is the inflection point in June where we move from May we had builds and we're going to start to have consistent draws moving forward due to the cuts. And now they've got everyone on board with compliance. I think I saw a note 87% compliance after the last meeting. The Saudis basically laid down the law and they said, either you guys comply or we're out and we'll just bury you again. And they all said, okay, okay, we'll, we'll comply. So, you know, they'll have to keep scolding them like children, but they're going to comply. Otherwise, they're going to just blow themselves up. And um, uh, so that's a good thing moving forward. Uh, building permits, everyone was worried about this. It's up 20%, okay? So missed by a hair, it's up 20% sequentially. Housing starts, missed by a hair, it's still up 5% sequentially. Um, mortgage, mortgage applications are up every single week. Uh, this week it was up 8%. Uh, next was business inventories beat. Um, capacity, util capacity utilization was an improvement, but again, missed by a hair. Uh, retail sales was the big blowout number. Everyone couldn't believe they were expecting plus 8%. It was plus almost plus 18, 17.7% up from negative 14.7%. So that was the big tell because 70% of the economy is consumer. They were back in force and they've got so much in savings and their balance sheets were strong coming in. They've gotten even stronger. You let them out of the house now, they're gonna spend and things are gonna rock. So that was the real highlight of the week. And the one that wasn't talked about was New York Empire State Manufacturing Index on Monday. This blew the doors off. It was negative 48 last month. It was expected to be negative 27 this month, and it came in at negative 20 basis points. So almost flat from negative 48% last month. This is beating expectations. The numbers are showing it. People want to get back to work. They want to make things happen. Um, okay, next we have the TSA numbers are up even a bit this week. So last week we had a high number of 544,000. Yesterday we hit 576,000. So we're, this is moving in the right direction. Good news there. This is the one that I've voiced concern with over the last few weeks. I said on this podcast, video cast, my number one worry was every time things start humming, Powell has a tendency to pull, put, take his foot off the gas, and this is the wrong time to do it. You don't do that until you're at mid to low single-digit unemployment. You do not do it yet, and they did it this week, okay? So hopefully this is just a blip, and they get back on track here, but this is not the time to take your foot off the pedal. This is the time to speed up. When you have momentum, you press momentum, and then when you're so far ahead of the, of the curve and you know unemployment starts dropping by 300 basis points per report, then you, you can tighten it up quickly. But this you don't want to kill all this effort by starting to pull back too soon. Huge mistake, and hopefully we'll see this turn up in coming weeks and keep the momentum while we've got it uh, and take, take this up a notch until those unemployment numbers really drop back to levels where everyone has jobs again, historic unemployment rates like we saw in January. Keep the pedal to the metal. Um, next is earnings. Um, if anyone gets cut off in the last few minutes on the podcast, just go to hedgefundtips.com. You can watch the last few minutes on the video cast. You just fast forward the YouTube video to the end and it's word for word exactly the same. Each week I do a couple sectors. This week I did the IBD Investors Business Daily Top 50 Growth Weighted Stocks. 
I did their 2020 and 2021 earnings estimates. What was really interesting was in the last 60 days, in spite of all that we've been through, these top 50 growth stocks have increased their 2020 estimates by over 5% in the past 60 days. Who would have thought, you know, that in the midst of this chaos, that earnings would actually go up for some of these uh, companies, but that's exactly what happened. And that also happened for the top 30 weights of the Russell 2000, the small cap stocks. Uh, they're, uh, okay, their 2020 earnings flatlined, so they were negative 1.09, but the 2021 actually rose by 1.66% in the last 60 days. So this is good stuff that we're seeing that no one's really paying a lot of attention to, but are critical for the underlying recovery. Um, and then we want to take a quick look at S&P earnings. This is key. So the estimates stayed up here at 163.88 for 2021. In 2019, earnings came in at 163.02. We traded up to 3,400 peak with a higher discount rate, meaning rates were higher, so multiples should be lower. Now rates are lower, multiples can be higher. And that would imply that we've got some room to run. You know, certainly 3,400 could get into the cards as we move closer to these earnings numbers. And I think this will be one of those rare instances. Usually earnings get taken down as the months go on. I think in this case, we may see earnings get taken up with the amount of stimulus. I think people are underestimating the impact of that money starting to circulate as demand comes back and people get back into the economy, which we've covered in recent weeks. But earnings stayed up strong, so that's really good news. And finally, we're gonna do the Ask Me Anything question for the week. And this one uh, came in again from Ben. Um, he said, hey Tom, in Thursday's Hedge Fund Tip Sentiment article you wrote, it appears there may still be a bit of gas in the pain trade higher. Now that we got the shakeout last week, we'll take it day by day. He says, the above isn't very optimistic in light of the AAII numbers in your article. Bullish percent at 24.37% uh, and bearish at 47.78. And so hats off to Ben. He's been paying attention. Those are extreme indicators. Uh, and I agree with him. I may be being conservative, but that's just my nature. I, I like to under-promise and over-deliver. That's just always been a, a good way to win in life. So um, I would say, number one, you never want to rely on just one indicator. So there are, I, I look at a couple hundred and you can see them, uh, a good portion of them on the site under the um, uh, indicator of the day. I've got about a hundred videos up here. You can look at them. So I look at these every week and there are a lot of them that are seriously overbought. Okay, but I, I'd say about 65% of the 100, you know, 65% are seriously overbought in 35. So it's nice to see these sentiments so pessimistic because it does mean you can push higher and you're spot on, Ben, and you've been paying attention and you learn. And I agree with you. But I look at a mosaic of things and, you know, enough of them are near overbought that you don't want to be too aggressive, expecting too much. But I think your the, the theme of your question is correct. I do think we can push higher. 
and it may exceed uh, expectations in coming months for sure. We're using pullbacks as opportunities moving forward. So thank you for the Ask Me Anything question. Uh, if anyone ha else has one, just email me during the week and we'll include a few on each weekly podcast video cast. And we're going to finish on time this week. So I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in. We're going to be back next week, same time, same place, and make it a great one. Bye-bye. Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. This is videocast number 36 and podcast episode 26 for the week ending June 26th. 2020 and boy was it a whirlwind week for sure we're going to cover quite a bit of information but as always we're going to start with some of our media content because that's where we refine our ideas and, and put out our best bullets and then we'll go down to the granularity to get through all the subjects for the week so thanks for joining i'm in a suit today because i had a nice segment with greta wall which we'll cover in just a moment uh but uh, let's go through them one by one First, I had uh, Cheddar TV earlier this week, and I'd like to thank Brad Smith, Nora Ali, and Francesca Conti for having me on the show. And that was a, a very interesting uh, um, segment because we, it was a day where there was a lot of negativity in the market, and I was talking about how, despite the fact that this is the most hated rally in history, it's also going to close out as the best quarter for equities in over 20 years. So we uh, went through a bunch of the data, data continues to beat, and yet uh, one out of five people sold 100% of their equities uh, at the bottom. And as you go up in age, uh, it was closer to a third once you got up to about 60, 65 years old. Um, so we covered a lot of that data. We covered the institutional positioning, which we covered last week on the Global Fund Manager Survey. Uh, most people, only 18% of uh, participants felt that it was a V-shaped recovery, and 53% uh, felt that it was a bear market rally, and they've been forced into cash, the most, uh, most forced out of cash from 5.7 down to 4.7, uh, this is the biggest drop in cash they were forced in in the last month since August of 2009. And the parallels there, there are eerie. They had had a big 50% rally off the March 2009 lows. They had been forced in. They had to drop cash and we're in the same, same position here with some nuances now that we had a little pullback over this week, which we're going to cover in this week's podcast video cast. So... Um, we we covered banks we covered a, a lot of different things so what you want to do for the cheddar uh segment is, is you can click on featured on and watch it live again thank you to brad smith and Nora ali as well as francesca conti for having me on uh this week next was a quote in usa today one of royal caribbean subsidiaries was doing a reorganization in spain Pullmanter, and there were some rumors that they were going to scrap the ships or sell the ships, um, you know, or they may actually reopen to uh, take cruisers. And the quote that I was able to give to Morgan Hines, by the way, thank you for including me in your article in USA Today, lovely working with her, uh, was that 
you know, this this may be it's too early to tell really if this reorganization in the industry is going to be a one off or a trend. Uh, you did see a number of pushbacks in in the last few days. People thought they were going to re start sailing in July or August, and now it's September, October, or November. The longer that takes, the harder it's going to be for some of the marginal players. So what does that mean long term? Very simple. In the short term, they'll all have to offer huge incentives like you saw with South Southwest Airlines uh, this week offering $39 flights domestically. Uh, you're going to see that in the cruise industry in the short term. But if more marginal players are reorged or scrapped and it takes supply and capacity, capacity offline, they're going to be money machines two years out because they'll be great demand, less supply. And I know everyone says, no, the demand's not going to come back. Just look at the demography. People love to cruise. Uh, you know, unlimited buffets. That's, you know, we love that in America. So um, uh, don't count them out. The, the key is how much supply will come off, how many more uh, Pullman tiers are there, and uh, it's, it's, it really is just too early to tell. So we'll find out. And then on the flip side, which we're going to cover today in great detail, is what happens if you wake up to a silver bullet? You know, there are hundreds of shots on goal, as Dr. Fauci always says, with a treatment. We'll talk about a couple of those. Or vaccine. You know, hundreds of millions of dollars of vaccines are being produced right now by companies who think they have it, but it has to be proved out. And they won't have the results till till you know the fourth quarter, but they're producing uh, at risk right now, and they wouldn't waste those millions of dollars, neither the government nor these businesses, if they didn't think there was a high probability or a good shot that it would go to market. So uh, a lot of things happening, and that certainly wasn't the narrative this week. The narrative this week was cases are going up, uh, and we'll talk about the implications of that. Uh, next, so. Um, Again, to thank Morgan Hines from the USA Today for including me in that article about cruising. Uh, Reuters, uh, there was an article early in the week. I want to thank Devik Jain, Meta Singh, and Powell Goraj for quoting me there. And, you know, they, I was just basically saying there's a lot of money on the sidelines still. And as the country reopens slowly and, you know, fits and starts, we had it this week for sure. We had the fits. Um, that money's going to be forced back into the market. Could you imagine if you're nearing retirement and you sold, you were one of the 30% in your late 50s, early 60s that sold at the bottom, and then the market continues to climb? I mean, how do you make that back after missing 35, 40%? You know, by the time you wait for the data to be good enough or you wait for the vaccine to be there, so that money's going to have to get back involved. And as people become clearer and clearer that there's no retest of the lows, then um, it, it is going to get forced in. And we're going to talk about that in the context of actually what happened in 1918. Um, one of my poker buddies, you know, uh, who shares a different political belief than I do, uh, said that something like 500 million people died from, you know, in 1918. It wasn't that. It was 687,000 in the United States. Um, which is orders of magnitude greater than what we have on a much smaller population at the time. And we'll talk about a little bit about what happened to the stock market, despite having six times as many deaths on a dramatically smaller population. Uh, once the lows were in, they were in. So um, that may bode well moving forward. So thank you to Devik, Meta, and Powell for including me in your Reuters article this week. 
and I just got off um, with um, uh, uh, One American News Network, Greta Wall, Wall to Wall with Greta Wall, great show. And she had me on to discuss, uh, the first part of this was a lot of the data. So I went through like seven or eight points of data that's beating uh, well beyond expectations, uh, sequential improvement, et cetera. And then we talked a lot about one of the things that threw the market off today was this perception about the stress test. And we're gonna, you know, if you know me, I like banks. And we're gonna talk about what that means going forward. And I was gonna cover it extensively in the videocast podcast, uh, but it was so packaged in my segment with Greta. She asked great questions that I wanna actually play the clip and then we can go from there. Uh, I'm not gonna play the whole clip. You can go through that again on featured on at hedgefundtips.com, it'll be right there. But since she sent it right away, I wanna use this because this will be a great jumping off point for the videocast podcast um, halfway through the segment here. So take a listen. 2.3, is a leading indicator was up 15.8% versus negative 18% last month. And manufacturing PMI, we're getting close to expansion at 49.6 versus 39.8. And new home sales was up 16.6% versus negative 5.2%. So the data is overwhelmingly good. It's improving, uh, it's mostly beating expectations. This is just a short-term concern that we're gonna see in fits and starts with different areas having uh, spikes in cases. And what you see, Greta, when, when the, there are those spikes in cases is people get worried about slower growth. And that's kind of what you've seen in the last couple of weeks. In a slower growth environment, people gravitate towards tech stocks because they expect rates will stay lower and that's where you're gonna get the price appreciation versus when things look like they're gonna come out quickly, come out of the recession quickly like we saw last month, cyclical performance. And uh, right now we're at a really interesting inflection point. The ratio between growth stocks and value stocks is at historic highs right now, relative strength of growth outperforming value. And the last handful of times that this happened, 2015, 
on the earn the amount of money that the banks could earn. <laughs> so as long as they're earning that money, which we're going to see on July 14th, Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan are, are going to report their earnings. Um, it, it really makes no difference whether they pay it out today or they pay it out in the fall. The other thing that had the market a little bit worried about the banks was that uh, they decided to do a retest in the fall just to make sure as we're coming out of this recovery that they're well capitalized. But the theme of last night's results was that the banks by and large were more than capitalized in a very se severe scenario, which we have not seen. And what you're gonna see on Monday, as you pointed out, is a more granularity on a bank by bank basis. And we'll see that most of these banks do not have to raise capital, number one. And number two, even the two, three banks out of the whole lot that have to cut their dividends a little bit. You know, you take a Wells Fargo, people are saying, well, they might have to cut their dividend. That's not news. So their dividend right now is yielding 7.35%. Even if they cut it in half, which I don't, I don't think it will be that extreme, you're still yielding well above the 10-year yield. You're trading at or uh, to a slight discount of book value. And these are gonna be the type of stocks that lead us out of, out of the recoveries. The health of the recovery is equivalent to the health of banks. And you see that coming out of every single recession. And this time will be no different. All right, Thomas Hayes, chairman of Great Hill Capital LLC, joining us to talk about Wall Street and the pandemic. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Greta. Okay, so I'm glad we uh, went through that. That's gonna save us a lot of time in uh, the detail. And as we, talked about in that clip uh the fed did put a cap you know as they say the lord giveth and the lord taketh away well um the the fed and this is randy quarles uh, randy is a he's the vice chairman of uh, bank supervision and i actually met randy uh, we were at foster freeze's place in jackson wyoming i went he was on my white water raft with me during that event uh, super guy about a decade uh, ago now, and now he's he's doing this, and he's just the perfect guy for the job because what they did is people almost confused cap with cut. He effectively said, "Look, you take the last four quarters of earnings average, and once you get that average quarterly number, don't pay a, a quarterly dividend that's higher than that average. That's completely rational." And what he's basically saying is don't spend more than you earn uh, or don't distribute more than you, you earn is, is uh, a more effective way to put it. But the key here is that banks are healthy enough to withstand the worst of the coronavirus crisis, which actually hasn't even uh, come to bear at present. So they're extremely well capitalized. They did voluntary buyback uh, um, uh, cuts and they're gonna continue those. But the way you can think about this is if I have a basketball and I'm pumping it up with air, okay? So the basketball is the bank stock and the air is the earnings, okay? If I keep pumping it up with air and I never let any of the air out, the earnings out in the form of distributions, meaning dividends, uh, that ball is gonna keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, meaning the intrinsic value of those earnings are accruing inside the stock price. So. In some sense, every time I pay out a distribution, the retained earnings go down and the shareholder equity is reduced. So in some sense, paying less dividends should in effect lead to more price appreciation. Now the other side of the argument is many people own 
bank stocks for high dividends. Well, 7.35% dividend on a, a traditional bank is very high. And, you know, even if they shave that down in the case of Wells Fargo, you're talking three and a half. That's well dramatically above the 10 year yield. And so just keep in mind, you are the owner, whether it's distributed as a dividend or retained in the company, you still own that interest in the company. And if it stays in the company, that leads to price appreciation, the intrinsic value. If it's distributed out, you get it in cash today. But either way you get it, it's more tax efficient if they don't pay it out, like Amazon doesn't pay any dividends and you see what happens to the price. So maybe this will lead to something good moving forward. If you want dividend, big dividends from banks, buy their preferred. If you want price appreciation, which they're well overdue for coming out of this recession, um, you know, you'll buy the common equity, which will retain more of the capital. Certainly in the short term, they're now mandated to, but maybe in the intermediate term, they'll find this is a good thing because we can earn a high return on equity, particularly when, uh, which we've discussed in recent weeks, when the yield curve steepens, the 210 yield curve steepens this dramatically in such a short period of time coming out of a recession. The last two times that the yield curve has steepened this quickly as it has in the last month and a half was 2009 and 2003. And both of those instances uh, led to multi, multi-year massive rallies in banks and financials, and this time will be no different. Do we go a little lower before we go higher? I don't know, but uh, I can tell you one thing, we were adding this week, that's for darn sure. This is uh, a cyclical opportunity, in, and you buy the highest quality, and you don't even think about it. And, and that's actually one of the things I wanted to, well, we'll talk about patience in a second, but that's uh, Randy, I think he is the perfect person. So the Lord taketh away, but also the Lord giveth. And what they did this week was uh, they're loosening up the Volcker rule. So, you know, I made the, the somewhat of a off the cuff tweet uh, after the thing, after the stress test results, I said, food for thought. The Fed made the right decision to put a short term cap on what banks can pay out. It did not put a cap on what banks can earn. Intrinsic value will continue to accrue to shareholders to be paid over time. Dodd-Frank restricted earnings, but now is being loosened up. And this week, we got a taste of that, which is going to free up $40 billion of capital for Wall Street banks. Uh, it's called, it's a reversal of the inter-affiliate margin requirement for swap trades uh, that they expect to free up to $40 billion for Wall Street banks. Uh, and they're able to invest in venture capital. If you remember that they were able to trade the firm's capital, well, now they can't do that, but they can invest in venture capital funds. So a fund that owns, you know, five startups, you know, they're not startups anymore, but, you know, think back five years, today's version of, you know, Uber, Airbnb, that type of stuff. They can own that so they can earn outsized gains on um, fast-growing companies that they have an edge because they have a banking relationship with and they know, have a better idea of who might be the winners, et cetera. So that's um, the push-pull. Everyone's talking about cuts and caps, which makes no difference because what matters is earnings power. And that's a function of the yield curves. It's a function of the PPP, which we're gonna see. Uh, the PPP fees were probably $20 billion in Q2 for that, that program. They got one to 5% origination fees. No one's talking about that. That's gonna offset a tremendous amount of the um, credit reserves that they're taking for a normal 
recession, you get certain credit card defaults and uh, you know leeway on the mortgages, etc. So a lot of good things happen. We'll get more granularity, as I said, on Greta Wall show. By the way, thank you to Greta Wall and Lindsay Oakley for having me on the show today. Uh, wall to wall with Greta Wall. Definitely check that out. And um, so now moving on, what's happening to the market? In the first 35 days off the March lows, we rallied 35%, okay? And that was just a huge move. And based on the active investment managers and a few other indicators we look at, uh, most institutional managers missed it. A lot of retail people caught it. So that made Wall Street angry. They say, oh, those dumb retail people, but they actually got it this time. And since then, okay, you've seen the institution, once you hit that, then the institutions have started moving in. And guess what happened in the last 60 days? Uh, the market has gone now effectively nowhere. So you had this rally up to 29.54. We closed probably around uh, 3,000 today. Um, so you've had two months of sideways. This is very common out of a, um, a recovery rally, out of a recession. You get that steep V and then you consolidate, digest the gains, get your pullback, scare everyone into thinking you're going out to take the lows, and um, and that's when you can you can move higher. So um, the quote that I wanted to get to was the Warren Buffett quote, which this is a perfect micro instance of that, which is the market doing nothing. And, and most people chased, so they missed all this, bought up here and then every time you got a pullback they got shaken out then it went up it went back they missed it then they bought up here they got shaken out then they missed it they bought up here they got shaken out so this is just normal human behavior of what happens and regardless of what the headline is it's you know it always looks the same there's always a new headline to fill the problem um and this week it was the case spikes which by the way um We'll we'll talk about that, but the case spikes, you know, you're seeing the average age go, go from 65 down to 35. The way I think about this is, number one, I think people should wear masks when they go out in public and um, are in crowded places. That's just me. We'll talk about why, and that's not a political thing. That's just what they did in 1918, and it's just the weaponry that we have in place. Our weaponry is going to get extremely more effective in the next three months and hopefully much sooner. We're gonna get a silver bullet treatment or we're gonna get a vaccine. I'm very confident in that, not betting against science. Uh, but in the meantime, the only weapon we have, if we wanna be warriors and if we wanna be patriots, the only way we can do that is to starve the virus by not giving it hosts. And that doesn't mean we stay indoors, you know, hiding in the closet under an Afghan. What we do is we go about our business like full, full tilt, unless you're really high risk, you do everything that you would normally do, except you wear a mask when you're in public. And if we had 330 million people, minus the people that are high risk, so call it 270 million people, doing that, getting out, doing the things that they need to do, if you can do things by Zoom or work remotely, do it. But um, wearing masks, not only would we crank the GDP, get millions of people back to work, but we would starve the virus because if it wasn't able to penetrate and get more hosts that could spread it, it eventually just dies. That's the weaponry we have. And as warriors and patriots, that's the best thing we can do for the country, for GDP, for everything. So that's, that's an aside. Um, okay, quote of the day, 
the, the stock market is a device for transferring money from the inpatient to the patient and this is where you earn your money when you get impatient and make uh, unwise short-term decisions getting shaken out of high-quality positions for the long term and if you miss your opportunity down here and you're not taking some advantage of what's up here and those companies that are still in this range like the cyclicals for the long term coming out of recessions um, you know it's it, it's understandable if you miss this it won't be understandable if you miss this opportunity when you look back two years from now because it'll have been so obvious that we would recover we would eventually get a treatment and uh in the meantime we would just push through it i mean china doesn't have any silver bullet and their numbers are phenomenal because they're three months behind us um and there are many examples of that so on to the article of the week we've covered a lot of it so we can uh get to it so i write these on wednesday night i post them out on thursday morning the market sold off huge on Wednesday, and I was talking about why the case spiked in the in those regions. Um, again, lower lower uh, ages. What, what's effectively happening while we wait for a treatment is we're getting mass exposure with low cost. And what do I mean by low cost? While the cases are going through the roof, the deaths are not at at present this doesn't mean go out without a mask i just talked about masks but it does mean that we're going to have the in a sense the best of both worlds where we'll have more of society potentially immune more people will start to follow what we've been doing in the northeast because we got hit the hardest in the tri-state area so when you lose a lot of people friends and family and friends of friends and family you take things differently. So these states that are just getting hit now, they haven't experienced it. So they don't see the incentive to wear a mask just as we did in the beginning, which is why our cases went through the roof. Once we saw people dying, we put on our masks and guess what? Our case count has dropped through the floor in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. And that's odd when you consider in New York how close people are together in New York City. It's just following these simple things to beat the invisible enemy that's how you crush it. You starve it to death. When you don't have the weaponry in conventional war, it's you know guns, planes, uh, bombs, etc. Here, we just have to starve it with masks and not get, allow it to get new hosts. That's what we've done in the tri-state area. And I think as these new spikes in cases show some deaths, although the treatment has gotten so good that um, less people are dying from it and the age is lower, so those people have lower, lower morbidity rates, um, hopefully people will, will wear masks and simultaneously you have other things happening with the drugs which we're going to talk about that we might get the silver bullet beforehand and just when we're getting used to the mask and winning and going out and doing our business and being you know getting things done we'll have the silver bullet and then we won't even need masks once we have that but uh, you know the scientists will let us know when, when we're at that point we're not there yet right now we got to use the weapon that we have um, so the case is spiked. The U.S. was going to put tariffs on the EU to uh, make the Boeing Airbus playing field more level. So they were taxing us. We were going to tax them. Markets don't like that. Uh, IMF downgraded the global growth rate from negative 3 to negative 4.9. Uh, 
Uh, that's, you know, the IMF would be the last place I'd ever want to go for a dinner party. I don't think they've ever made a positive revision in the history of their existence before the fact. They're just historically negative and conservative, which is fine. That's, you know, their job, I guess, is to be conservative. Um, but, you know, in the case of the U.S., they're down to negative 8% for 2020, which is about 1.6 trillion, give or take 1.65. Uh, we're now, which we're going to talk about with uh, money supply and stimulus aid and liquidity, we're going to be probably closer to 10 or $15 trillion to offset a less than $2 trillion problem. So as we get them, as we are warriors and we kill the invisible enemy by starving the hell out of it with our masks until we get a silver bullet in the form of a treatment or vaccine, um, we've got the stimulus aid and liquidity to handle the economy. So that was what brought the market down and it reverberated all week. So Monday, the futures were down when I did the article with Devic um, and Meta. Uh, then Wednesday, we had the same problem. The market sold off. And then today we had the bank people worried about the banks and they were worried a lot about the uh, case spikes as well, even though the deaths are declining. And, you know, people are saying, well, no, the deaths will show up in 14 days. And I, yeah, you'll see some deaths. By the way, there's, you're going to see a spike in deaths. That's because New Jersey put a ton of um, deaths on the books that they that were backdated from like since December. Anyone who died uh, that had like a flu-like symptom, they put into deaths. And most people know that, so they're not taking that death spike seriously. Um, but we'll see with these spiked regions. I, my guess is deaths will continue to come down because of the age of these new cases is much lower. The treatment ability of hospitals, the knowledge of doctors uh, has gone up dramatically. We know so much more in less uh, now than we did 60 to 90 days ago. Um, but that's that. So what I loved about this article, the Luke Combs, when it rains, it pours stock market. I named all these bad things that were happening, you know, and then New York, New Jersey and Connecticut said, OK, any states that have spikes, if you want to come to New York, New Jersey or Connecticut, you got to sit in quarantine for 14 days and the market went crazy. Didn't like that. Well, we did it to them. Uh, I, I mean, you know, they did it. They did it to us. We did it to them. They did it. You know, if you were from New York and you went to Florida, you had to wait for 14 days. Now, if you're coming from Florida back to New York, you got to wait 14 days. You know, it's just the way it is. Um, and then the other thing that's actually a factor, though, that you have to keep an eye on from an economic perspective. I don't care about politically or socially. Everyone has different views. It, it's awesome. Whatever view, your views are, this is a, mar a markets podcast. We don't care about uh, views. But from an economic perspective, the market is afraid of a blue wave or a blue administration at the very least, but certainly a blue wave. And the polls have been weak as of late. Now, if you're on the Republican side, you say if there's ever a time for weak polls, get them done now so that you can you know, turn your momentum and ride it into the election. So the market is somewhat hopeful that maybe there will be a turnaround. Why is the market worried about a blue administration, Democratic administration and or House and Senate is because they've made it clear that they want to raise taxes. If you raise taxes, you lower earnings. If you lower earnings, you probably lower not only the price of stocks and assets, you lower the multiple because growth will be slower. So it can have a compounding effect. Now you can say, well, it's the responsible thing to do. We got to pay for all this stuff. I, I'm not going to debate you either way. I'm just going to say that the market would prefer a, the stock market would prefer 
a uh, low taxes, lower regulation. Socially, all the other stuff, it's an open debate. But what the market wants in terms of earnings, it fears that possibility, which is showing up in the polls. It's early, but it's, it's, uh, it's a short-term trend that uh, the market is being watchful of, and we will continue to do that. Historically, the best case scenario is a gridlocked political environment. So if you got a Democratic president, you'd have either the House or the Senate would be Republican. If you got a Republican president, either the House or the Senate would be, um, you know, it's basically you have a check, check and balance. The biggest risk is if you get all Democrat, you know, House, Senate, President, all, or all Republican, House, Senate, Congress, and that's problematic. So the, the most bullish scenario is a hedge check and balance. It's effectively gridlock, so they can't get, you know, the last thing you really want politicians to do is actually get too much done because just let business do what they need to do and stay out of the way is generally a helpful thing, not, you know, Wild West cowboys because that can lead to excesses, but uh, generally, you know, business knows how to, how to do what they do and, uh, uh, that's a good thing. So gridlock is not a bad thing in Washington and the market's saying, what if it, there's no gridlock, what could happen? And that, that's putting some heft to the market this week. Um, okay, so basically Luke Combs is in this video. You should definitely check it out. It, it, you know, it's a typical country song and you know, if you've been watching this for a while, you know I like country. The guy, you know, he didn't lose his dog, but he, he you know, he, he wakes up, he has had a party, there's a you know hangover, his girlfriend comes in and angry, and she walks out of the house and he's, and he's feeling like down on his luck, he's lost everything, he's in bad shape, and it's at that moment that his luck changes instantly. Uh, he talks about walking, you know, he goes for a drive, he buys a scratch off lotto ticket that she always said was a waste, and he wins from that, and then he, you know, buys his six pack. I mean, it's amazing. These country songs are always about, you know, six packs and tequila and all that stuff. I, I, you know, that's not the answer, you know, for anything. But anyway, he's having a good time. And then, um, you know, he calls in a radio station. He wins this vacation to Panama, and he doesn't have to see his uh, ex future and mother in law anymore. And, uh, you know, meets a new girl at uh, the local restaurant and she goes on the free vacation. So just when his all of his he thought all of his luck had ran out. So just like we had this week, cases spike, blue wave, uh, tariff fighting, global downgrades, all these things happen. Something happens to, to change the luck, the stress test, something happens. And whether that's going to be a silver bullet, don't bet against science. Um, you know, we have two things that came out this weekend. One is Gilead is going to start testing the inhaled version. You know, the thing about remdesivir, it's pretty clear now that it has a benefit, but the problem was you have to be in the hospital and it has to be, um, administered by needle, I believe. So, you know, it's like, am I going to go to a baseball game without a mask and not worry if I get COVID, I'll just go to the emergency room and get a needle. I'm not going to take that risk. But if there's an inhaled thing, if you get sick and you don't have to go to the hospital, that's a good thing. I'm not saying this is the silver bullet at all. I don't know. I know there are hundreds, as they say, hundreds of shots on goal, and a lot of them are very promising. I do know the concierge doctors in the tri-state area that are winning are still giving uh, ivermectin. 
I don't, I don't have enough data on that other than anecdotal, but there are a lot of things happening that are reflective of the lower death counts in addition to age declining, in addition to new knowledge, in addition to rolling people over and that type of thing, and we've seen all the, the news headlines, uh, treatments are getting better and better. But there's gonna come a day when we wake up, and hopefully sooner than later, where they're gonna say, we got something that works, and roll it out you know, instantaneously. The other thing that we saw was that steroid in Portugal uh, and also Britain that's just been phenomenal for severe cases. That's why the death rate they believe is so low in Portugal, um, where uh, we actually just bought land there last year um, in Algarve. So we're excited about that. But uh, their death rate is, is extremely low. Uh, and this steroid, I guess, will start to be used in our treatment for severe, for severe person. We need something like when your fever spikes up, you take a pill and it knocks it out. And hopefully that'll be coming sooner than later. Then we can go to baseball games, hockey games, concerts, the whole story and, and rock and roll. And then we'll have a vaccine and then, you know, the mask, we can have a mask burning party, uh, hopefully the end of the year or early next year. Um, so... You know, I talked a lot about that on Cheddar. You can go through that. And what I'm pointing to here is just as Luke in the video thought that his girlfriend leaving him was gonna ruin his life, um, it turned out to be the inflection point where his life changed. And similarly, most people think COVID's gonna destroy the economy. And similarly, it may prove to be the best thing that ever happened for growth moving forward. What do I mean by that? Well, the negative narrative last year when we were going sideways, um, last year and a half rather, um, was that monetary policy is ineffective, it's pushing on a string, and if we don't get people globally doing fiscal policy on a large scale, we're gonna have stagnant growth. Well, this has brought more COVID and that emergency of COVID has brought more fiscal stimulus to bear in a shorter time than has ever happened in the history of the world. You know, uh, it was 12% of global GDP, it's now probably more, and it's concentrated in the developed markets. And the big holdout for years and years and years because of their history was Germany. Uh, and they're the ones that are just cranking it out at uh, 34% of GDP, Italy cranking it, UK, Japan, uh, US, you know, we're doing a lot, but uh, we, we can do more. And by the way, we're going to get another stimulus package. President Trump was talking, supports very generous coronavirus stimulus package, meaning um, they want to do, ideally in July, up to 40% infrastructure. And they want to do potentially another stimulus check for the people that need it the most. The checks they sent out, I believe, were $1,200 an adult and $500 for a child. So that would be, you know, 3,400 or so for a family of four at the lower income level. So those checks are really helping and you're seeing it in uh, Robinhood accounts, okay, <laughs> when some of it went there, but you're also seeing it in bank account savings. So as demand's coming back, people have so much money to go out to do things. Uh, some are spending it online, et cetera, but, um, if we got another trillion, that's really gonna bump things up. Probably gonna be all that we need in terms of a final bridge until the economy just starts humming and money supply 
um, we get the money su supply multiplier effect, which we're going to talk about. So um, there's the fiscal stimulus. We would have never had that. Second thing is the M2 money supply stock. Um, the Fed increased their balance sheet about $3.6 in the last crisis. It, the money supply increase alongside that, it was about double multiplier effect. So they um, increased the balance sheet by 3.6, but the money supply effect was, was about $6.5 trillion, and that helped us recover the last time. We've already done about $3 trillion in the balance sheet this time, just in the first couple of months. And so if you add that with all the stimulus aid and liquidity that we've covered in previous weeks, you're looking at, you know, 10 to $15 trillion of money circulating in the economy. <laughs> Demand is coming back. Yeah, fits and starts. We saw it in Texas. They got to close the bars or, you know, reduce the large crowds from 500 to 100. Same with Florida, et cetera. I don't want to belabor that issue. So yeah, that'll happen. But by and large, demand is increasing. The Northeast, our cases are plummeting. We are going out more. We are wearing masks when we go out because we saw how many people can die if you don't wear masks. And uh, we're able to do a ton of business now because we're doing it the right way. So uh, I think the whole, oh, by the way, the other thing uh, Stephanie Link put out, which was really interesting, the five states that are having the biggest spikes that are slowing down their reopening are only 16% of GDP. The big GDP, tri-state area, parts of California, et cetera, um, they are the ones that are reopening and cranking and their cases are going down. So particularly in the Northeast, and that's the biggest part of GDP. So um, while they're slowing in 16% of GDP, they are accelerating in you know greater than 50% of the GDP. And that, that's a good thing as well. Um, but this week we were focused on what's wrong versus what, what's right. That can shift on a dime. Um, credit issuance, uh, you know, the high yield issuance to date, this is a nice table that was posted, I guess, by the Wall Street Journal through someone on Twitter, at Sober Look. I guess they post a lot and they get recirculated. So I'll have to check out this handle and see what kind of charts they put out. Um, so basically, year to date, you look at the issuance as of June 17th of the past years, we're at three, almost four times last year, uh, seven times, you know, and had the Fed not stepped in, the credit markets would have been closed and we would have seen bankruptcies and defaults left and right. Instead, what these companies have done has built an amazing war chest to get through this short-term contraction and they're well liquefied. Obviously, the marginal players are, you know, they're going to be bankruptcies, the small players that can't access the capital markets, but a lot of high yield issue. And so marginal players are getting funded to get them through and they're going to have all that dry powder to go to work. M&A game will be on very, very shortly. So uh, that that's good to see. No one would have expected this on March 23rd, the, the ability of companies to lend money to get through the short term shutdown. Um, and that's attributable to the administration, Mnuchin, and um, Fed Chair uh, Jerome Powell have done a phenomenal job acting ahead of the curve to get the liquidity, stimulus, and aid before the plate crashed all over the floor. They saw it falling, they put down the trampoline, and it saved the country. We're going to 
deal with these spike ups. We flatten the curve so we have capacity in the hospitals. If we do get these flare ups, it will be dealt with. But don't count out a silver bullet weaponry for our war against the invisible enemy. It is on its way. And in the meantime, we have the mass when we go out of public, starve the hell out of the virus, let it die on its own in the meantime. Um, cases versus deaths we already, already covered. And why that's happened. So we have here um, a couple pictures from 1918. And it's interesting, if we could get buy-in, you know, as I said, they lost 678,000 people in 1918, and yet the stock market corrected 33% and it never retested. But guess what it did do? Exactly what we're seeing now. You had that huge rally up, and then you had this chop, sideways chop, before it took the next leg higher. And you had the huge rally up, sideways chop, until it took the next leg higher. So I think this is going to be in, you know, in 1918 to 1919, it took a year, year and a half. I think this is going to be dramatically compressed because there was nowhere to get to, back to new highs. There was nowhere, we already did it in NASDAQ, nowhere near the amount of Fed and um, Treasury and global coordination or information available at that time to compress it. So uh, this could be done in the famous warp speed, uh, that this type of recovery. But this is, you know, this is kind of what we've been doing and that makes a lot of sense and that's why you get paid for patience. Uh, stock market is a device to transfer money from the inpatient to the patient. And I'm sure there are a ton of people that, not, you know, sold here, sold here, sold here, sold here, definitely sold here. They were going back down and they missed all of this. And you can never get those 50 to 100% moves back. You just can't. Um, so consider ourselves lucky on weeks like this when we get to add franchises like a Wells Fargo, like banks, uh, you know, like these companies that are still down materially from their peaks and that over time will make new highs and will make people fortunes for buying high quality and just sticking with it through this patience through this fear, through these headlines, through this nonsense, through time, you know, seeing other high flyers pass you up, but in the long term, boom. So um, this would be really nice if we got to a situation where we could get everyone on board with this war against the invisible enemy and, and, and understand that our weapon at the moment is the mask to starve the hell out of the virus. We could have baseball games again. Look at these look at these people sitting so close together. I don't know if that's the answer. I'll leave the scientists to debate that. But they did okay considering they had basically no information back then. Uh, look at this. A boxing mask. They're all sitting there with masks. Uh, I think even one of the boxers is wearing a mask. The ref, what, uh, he's not following directions. But look at all these people. They're wearing their mask and they're able to go out and do these things. I mean... I'd go to a live concert if they said you have to wear, if they said everyone in the concert has to wear a mask to get in the door, just like you have to check your bag, you have to wear a mask. I'd go to a concert tomorrow. Maybe I'm crazy, but I, I would 100% do that if everyone in the place had to wear a mask and I'd stand right next to them. No, no problem here. But everyone would have to wear a mask. That's my, that's my view. Um, yours may be different. Scientists may be different, but I think that would change a lot and bring a ton of business to bear and probably 
in some sense accelerate um, levels of herd immunity because the virus, there was a note out by uh, one of the major banks, I think it was Jeffries, but the analyst said that the case spiking is a positive because it's weakening the virus. There was some argument that he had and he had some science. I, di I didn't get to study it because I had a lot going on today. But if that's true, you know, even if it gets through some of the mass, but more people are exposed to a lesser virulency, uh, maybe that, that also helps with on the herd type of thesis. I don't know, but I know masks don't hurt. That's all I can say. And let's, let's just, uh, let's crush this thing. Um, now, onto the shorter term view is the sentiment was at an extreme level of pessimism this week, 24% bullish, 49% bearish. Historically, it pays you to be a buyer at these levels. Buyer, 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 buyer. You know, you look here, you can just trace it yourself. It pays to buy around the low 20s uh, um, versus being a seller. It pays to sell when you're well above the 50s on the bullish. So, well, it, it's an easier bet on the contra buy signals than it is on the overbought because overbought can just keep pushing higher and we may see that coming out of this rally you know this sentiment will get up to 50 and the market will just keep going that that can happen but we're nowhere near and we're nowhere near on the cnn fear and greed you know we got to zero effectively in march but we have not gotten anywhere near euphoria it only came in at 47 it's probably lower today um, you know, at 80, 90, 100, I'd start to trim, I, you know, in the short term, not in my long term holding, but I definitely start to trim where there's euphoria. We're, we're nowhere close. So you get got to just get back to the transferring mechanism that the stock market is transfers money from the impatient people that can't wait it out to get to euphoric levels to lay it off to the people who are getting excited at the short term top um, to the patient people who can stick through these type of headlines stick through two months of sideways zero progress in the market and win and use these pullbacks to buy high quality stocks for the long term. Uh, National Association of Active Investment Managers was up uh, this week, but this prints only once a week. So my guess is it's back down to 70 after Wednesday and Fridays. We'll take a look at that for next week. And, um, you know, I talked a lot about banks here for the message of the week. I still am of that view. And I think as it settles out, sometimes like you see a bad energy report and energy sells off and then a day later it's up or Jerome Powell talks on a Wednesday, the market goes down and then by Friday the market's rallying. I think we're gonna have a similar thing. Certainly Monday night, greater granularity of the stress test, allowing people to uh, digest and comment on it over the week. Hopefully this helps people understand that you know, just because they can't pay it out, you as the owner, that intrinsic value is still accruing in that basketball. They're, they're still yours. What's the difference if they pay it to you today or, you know, in six months, you know, that air, the earnings is still there making the, the pie bigger and bigger and bigger. So um, uh, I think that's going to be a very positive thing. And I just closed out saying, I wish you in the market a Luke Combs style happy outcome. Uh, after a tough couple months for the country, you know, fighting the virus, fighting the invisible enemy. And we will prevail, prevail quickly if we take all the necessary actions to win with the weapons we have. And I think we're going to be surprised with how quickly we get 
quote unquote weapon of mass destruction against our enemy the virus which would be a silver bullet treatment would be the best and followed by a vaccine that works which uh, even the most pessimistic people believe will happen by early 2021 and the most optimistic people think it'll happen by Q4 2020 so uh, to be determined next we want to cover um, this was very interesting and I covered this in Greta's segment this is the and this is sentiment trader at sentiment trader they put out some good stuff um, follow them on Twitter if you're on Twitter every time the value growth to value ratios 14 month RSI is at these levels we're seeing what happens you get a reverse reversal meaning value i.e. cyclicals start to outperform growth i.e. tech so if you look at this spot and you'll see the years like I discussed on Greta's thing are all slowdown years or recession years and that's when cyclicals outperform it's just part of the cycle that they outperform so uh, here to be determined this is extended and usually the more extended it gets the bigger the reversal uh, here it wasn't as extended but you got the reversal into value and cyclicals here same thing reversal from growth here huge reversal because you had a huge extension huge extension probably a bigger reversal we'll see it can get more extended before it reverses but you know this is the ratio okay this is the ratio that, that things start to change 1987 remember recession early 90s remember recession uh early 2000s remember recession early uh 2008 re recession that's when cyclicals outperform coming out. That's the recovery. That's why banks are so important for the recovery. That's why the Fed works to steepen the yield curve. That's why banks went crazy the last time the yield curve ste steepened this much in 2009 and 2003, multi-year rallies uh, after the steepening, which we've just had. So uh, this is a great chart. Uh, check them out at Sentiment Trader. The next is... Um, Number nine, economic data that I covered. I didn't go through on Greta's call. I'm gonna just, I'm not gonna go through all of them. Rig, rig counts came down just a little bit this week. Again, they're down some 90% from the peak in 2014. All that supply coming off, no major investment in the last five years. The next three to five years, you're gonna see these oil companies cook. The next three to five days, I, I have no idea. But um, that is good news and we covered personal personal spending was up 8.2 percent consumer sentiment was at 78 up from 72 last month durable goods we covered uh plus 15.8 manufacturing pmi near expansion 49.6 new home sales up 16.6 percent so a lot of great sequential a lot of beating data this week and that's a good thing uh this was the the steroid we talked about with portugal already covered that this is the high frequency trade, uh, high frequency data that everyone's looking at. Um, this is restaurant bookings. You're seeing those come off dramatically off the bottom. You're seeing uh, TSA checkpoints. I, I don't have the exact number this week, but it looks like we're getting close to 600,000. Maybe we hit that this week. It just keeps going up. Uh, Apple driving directions, again, back to pre-pandemic levels. Uh, foot traffic again. So these are just some of the things you can see. 
uh, hoarding groceries at the supermarket is plummeting, more people are going out, less people are scared. This was that New Jersey death, death spike that I told you about where they booked all the deaths from December with flu-like symptoms as COVID deaths. So most people are discounting that. And then today was more realistic in line with trend. Um, number 12, if you're on the podcast, if we run out of time, just go to hedgefundtips.com and watch the last, fast forward in the YouTube video, watch the last five minutes. I'll try to finish on time. Baltic Dry Index, um, this is cool. This is a global trade, the pricing for the shipping and you're seeing it totally recover not just to pre-pandemic but it's cooking now the demand is there as countries around the world recover uh similar type of situation in this multi-year rally similar type of situation coming out of 2011 so a lot of good things happening there um now the trump stimulus we covered and finally um the ask me anything question of the week from Brian D emailed me. Brian D said, question for your video cast. Tom, question for your video cast. This quarter has been a very, po very positive for stocks, e.g. NASDAQ 100 is up 37% or so since the beginning of April quarter. And uh, quarter end portfolio rebalancing is thus likely to be a net negative for equities. However, the extent of participation by large players is unclear. You mentioned many had stayed on the sidelines and had to chase. Uh, are you expecting portfolio rebalancing sell-off next week? And is there somewhere that retail investors can access, uh, access aggregate portfolio positioning information? Appreciate your analysis every week. Always interesting and insightful. B. Uh, thanks for sending this in, Brian. This is a really good question. Um, and CNBC had a decent answer this week. And the answer is... It's a mishmash from all different banks reporting all different stuff. The most important document I look at for institutional positioning every month, which I cover every month, is the Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey. If you didn't see this month's survey, just go to the website and there is a search bar here on the right side. Just put in uh, Global Fund Manager Survey and you'll find that. That's the most important thing. Now. You also have the National Association of Active Investment Managers, so you see what their positioning is like. And then banks put out notes, so it's mostly they put it out to institutions, but every now and then, that you, well, you can get that on a Bloomberg terminal or you can get it, um, some of the news outlets will publish that if you're paying attention. And usually, I'll publish that in our daily read. So if you're on the daily newsletter, I put out like 15, 20, 10, five key reads a day, and oftentimes that data is embedded there and you can access it for free. So go to, in this case, um, to give you specifics and finish on time, there's an article on cnbc.com and the title is, there's a wave of selling estimated to be in the billions that's about to hit the stock market. And it goes through all the reports of the different banks. Goldman was betting on one thing from estimates ranging from 35 billion out of equities into bonds, 35 billion to 75 billion. My guess though, is a lot of managers are gonna want window dressing because you know, looking at the data, a lot of institutional sold at the bottom and didn't get back in in time. So they're gonna wanna show that they have some equities after a 35, 40% rally. Um, I found these to be completely unreliable as far as when one asset has moved so much in a particular quarter and everyone says, well, people are going to rebalance out of it. it. There's very rarely a high correlation because there's so much money sloshing around anyway. And you don't know 
what in international managers are doing on a currency basis. So I, you know, just like the uh, other thing that we talked about um, with the with the options that that gentleman kept asking about, I wouldn't rely on it. I would look at it. It's just another data point that you keep up in your mind, but you got to make decisions beyond a week. If you don't make decisions on a weekly basis, long-term basis, guys, they handed you some opportunities this week with these headline sell-offs. There'll be more to come over the summer. Take advantage, listen in, follow the information. I hope you found this helpful this week. Uh, grateful you listened in. We'll see you back next week. Same time, same place. Thanks for listening in. Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. This is videocast number 36 and podcast episode 26 for the week ending June 26, 2020. And boy, was it a whirlwind week for sure. We're going to cover quite a bit of information, but as always, we're going to start with some of our media content because that's where we refine our ideas and, and put out our best bullets. And then we'll go down to the granularity to get through all the subjects for the week. So thanks for joining. I'm in a suit today because I had a nice segment with Greta Wall, which we'll cover in just a moment. Uh, but uh, let's go through them one by one. First, I had uh, Cheddar TV earlier this week, and I'd like to thank Brad Smith, Nora Ali, and Francesca Conti for having me on the show. And that was a, a very interesting uh, um, segment because we it was a day where there was a lot of negativity in the market, and I was talking about how, despite the fact that this is the most hated rally in history, it's also going to close out as the best quarter for equities in over 20 years. So we uh, went through a bunch of the data. Data continues to beat, and yet uh, one out of five people sold 100% of their equities uh, at the bottom. And as you go up in age, uh, it was closer to a third once you got up to about 60, 65 years old. Um, so we covered a lot of that data. We covered the institutional positioning, which we covered last week on the Global Fund Manager Survey. Uh, most people, only 18% of uh, participants felt that it was a V-shaped recovery and 53% uh, felt that it was a bear market rally and they've been forced into cash the most, uh, most forced out of cash from 5.7 down to 4.7. Uh, this is the biggest drop in cash they were forced in in the last month since August of 2009. And the parallels there, there are eerie. They had had a big 50% rally off the March 2009 lows. They had been forced in. They had to drop cash and we're in the same, same position here with some nuances now that we had a little pullback over this week, which we're going to cover in this week's podcast video cast. So... Um, we we covered banks we covered a, a lot of different things so what you want to do for the cheddar uh segment is, is you can click on featured on and watch it live again thank you to brad smith and Nora ali as well as francesca conti for having me on uh this week next was a quote in usa today one of royal caribbean subsidiaries was doing a reorganization in spain Pullmanter, and there were some rumors that they were going to scrap the ships or sell the ships, um, you know, or they may actually reopen to uh, take cruisers. And the quote that I was able to give 
to Morgan Hines. By the way, thank you for including me in your article in USA Today. Lovely working with her. Uh, was that you know this this may be it's too early to tell really if this reorganization in the industry is going to be a one-off or a trend. Uh, you did see a number of pushbacks in in the last few days. People thought they were going to re start sailing in July or August, and now it's September, October, or November. The longer that takes, the harder it's going to be for some of the marginal players. So what does that mean long term? Very simple. In the short term, they'll all have to offer huge incentives like you saw with South Southwest Airlines uh, this week offering $39 flights domestically. Uh, you're going to see that in the cruise industry in the short term. But if more marginal players are reorged or scrapped and it takes supply and capacity, capacity offline, they're going to be money machines two years out because they'll be Great demand, less supply. And I know everyone says, no, the demand's not going to come back. Just look at the demography. People love to cruise. Uh, you know, unlimited buffets. That's, you know, we love that in America. So um, uh, don't count them out. The, the key is how much supply will come off, how many more uh, Pullman tiers are there. And uh, it's, it's, it really is just too early to tell. So we'll find out. And then on the flip side, which we're going to cover today in great detail is what happens if you wake up to a silver bullet you know there are hundreds of shots on goal as dr fauci always says with a treatment we'll talk about a couple of those or vaccine you know hundreds of millions of dollars of vaccines are being produced right now by companies who think they have it but it has to be proved out and they won't have the results till till you know the fourth quarter but they're producing uh, at risk right now, and they wouldn't waste those millions of dollars, neither the government nor these businesses, if they didn't think there was a high probability or a good shot that it would go to market. So uh, a lot of things happening, and that certainly wasn't the narrative this week. The narrative this week was cases are going up, uh, and we'll talk about the implications of that. Uh, next, so um, Again, to thank Morgan Hines from the USA Today for including me in that article about cruising. Uh, Reuters, uh, there was an article early in the week. I want to thank Devik Jain, Meta Singh, and Powell Goraj for quoting me there. And, you know, they, I was just basically saying there's a lot of money on the sidelines still. And as the country reopens slowly and, you know, fits and starts, we had it this week for sure. We had the fit. Um, that money's going to be forced back into the market. Could you imagine if you're nearing retirement and you sold, you were one of the 30% in your late 50s, early 60s that sold at the bottom, and then the market continues to climb? I mean, how do you make that back after missing 35, 40%? You know, by the time you wait for the data to be good enough or you wait for the vaccine to be there, so that money's going to have to get back involved. And as people become clearer and clearer that there's no retest of the lows, then um, it, it is going to get forced in. And we're going to talk about that in the context of actually what happened in 1918. Um, one of my poker buddies, you know, uh, who shares a different political belief than I do, uh, said that something like 500 million people died from, you know, in 1918. It wasn't that. It was 687,000 in the United States. Um, which is orders of magnitude greater than what we have on a much smaller population at the time. And we'll talk about a little bit about what happened to the stock market, despite having six times as many deaths on a dramatically smaller population. Uh, 
uh, once the lows were in, they were in. So um, that may bode well moving forward. So thank you to Derek, Meta, and Powell for including me in your Reuters article this week. And I just got off um, with um, uh, uh, One American News Network, Greta Wall, Wall to Wall with Greta Wall, great show. And she had me on to discuss uh, the first part of this was a lot of the data. So I went through like seven or eight points of data that's beating uh, well beyond expectations, uh, sequential improvement, et cetera. And then we talked a lot about one of the things that threw the market off today was this perception about the stress test. And we're gonna, you know, if you know me, I like banks. And we're going to talk about what that means going forward. And I was going to cover it extensively in the Videocast podcast. Uh, but it was so packaged in my segment with Greta, she asked great questions, that I want to actually play the clip and then we can go from there. Uh, I'm not going to play the whole clip. You can go through that again on Featured On at HedgeFundTips.com. It'll be right there. But since she sent it right away, I want to use this because this will be a great jumping off point for the Videocast podcast uh, halfway through the segment here. So take a listen. 2.3 last print. Which is a leading indicator, was up 15.8% versus negative 18% last month. And manufacturing PMI, we're getting close to expansion at 49.6 versus 39.8. And new home sales was up 16.6% versus negative 5.2%. So the data is overwhelmingly good. It's improving. Uh, it's mostly beating expectations. This is just a short-term concern that we're gonna see in fits and starts with different areas having uh, spikes in cases. And what you see, Greta, when, when the, there are those spikes in cases is people get worried about slower growth. And that's kind of what you've seen in the last couple of weeks. In a slower growth environment, people gravitate towards tech stocks because they expect rates will stay lower and that's where you're going to get the price appreciation versus when things look like they're going to come out quickly, come out of the recession quickly, like we saw last month, cyclical performance. And uh, right now we're at a really interesting inflection point. The ratio between growth stocks and value stocks is at historic highs right now, relative strength of growth outperforming value. And the last handful of times that this happened, 2015, 2007, 
is that the Fed decided proactively, uh, they decided to put a cap on the amount of dividends that they could pay out. They did not put a cap on the earn the amount of money that the banks could earn. <laughs> so as long as they're earning that money, which we're going to see on July 14th, Wells Fargo and JP Morgan are, are going to report their earnings, um, it, it really makes no difference whether they pay it out today or they pay it out in the fall. The other thing that had the market a little bit worried about the banks was that uh, they decided to do a retest in the fall just to make sure as we're coming out of this recovery that they're well capitalized. But the theme of last night's results was that the banks by and large were more than capitalized in a very se severe scenario, which we have not seen. And what you're gonna see on Monday, as you pointed out, is a more granularity on a bank by bank basis. And we'll see that most of these banks do not have to raise capital, number one. And number two, even the two, three banks out of the whole lot that have to cut their dividends a little bit. So, you know, you take a Wells Fargo, people are saying, well, they might have to cut their dividend. That's not news. So their dividend right now is yielding 7.35%. Even if they cut it in half, which I don't, I don't think it will be that extreme, you're still yielding well above the 10-year yield. You're trading at or uh, to a slight discount of book value. And these are gonna be the type of stocks that lead us out of, out of the recoveries. The health of the recovery is equivalent to the health of banks. And you see that coming out of every single recession. And this time will be no different. All right, Thomas Hayes, Chairman of Great Health Capital LLC, joining us to talk about Wall Street amid the pandemic. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Greta. Okay, so I'm glad we uh, went through that. That's gonna save us a lot of time in uh, the detail. And as we, talked about in that clip uh the fed did put a cap you know as they say the lord giveth and the lord taketh away well um the the fed and this is randy quarles uh, randy is a he's the vice chairman of uh, bank supervision and i actually met randy uh, we were at foster freeze's place in jackson wyoming i went he was on my white water raft with me during that event uh, super guy about a decade uh, ago now, and now he's he's doing this, and he's just the perfect guy for the job because what they did is people almost confused cap with cut. He effectively said, "Look, you take the last four quarters of earnings average, and once you get that average quarterly number, don't pay a, a quarterly dividend that's higher than that average. That's completely rational." And what he's basically saying is don't spend more than you earn uh, or don't distribute more than you, you earn is, is uh, a more effective way to put it. But the key here is that banks are healthy enough to withstand the worst of the coronavirus crisis, which actually hasn't even uh, come to bear at present. So they're extremely well capitalized. They did voluntary buyback uh, um, uh, cuts and they're gonna continue those. But the way you can think about this is if I have a basketball and I'm pumping it up with air, okay? So the basketball is the bank stock and the air is the earnings, okay? If I keep pumping it up with air and I never let any of the air out, the earnings out in the form of distributions, meaning dividends, uh, that ball is gonna keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, meaning the intrinsic value of those earnings are accruing inside the stock price. So. In some sense, every time I pay out a distribution, the retained earnings go down and the shareholder equity is reduced. So in some sense, paying less dividends 
should in effect lead to more price appreciation. Now, the other side of the argument is many people own bank stocks for high dividends. Well, 7.35% dividend on a, a traditional bank is very high. And, you know, even if they shave that down in the case of Wells Fargo, you're talking three and a half. That's well dramatically above the 10 year yield. And so just keep in mind, you are the owner, whether it's distributed as a dividend or retained in the company, you still own that interest in the company. And if it stays in the company, that leads to price appreciation, the intrinsic value. If it's distributed out, you get it in cash today. But either way you get it, it's more tax efficient if they don't pay it out, like Amazon doesn't pay any dividends and you see what happens to the price. So maybe this will lead to something good moving forward. If you want dividend, big dividends from banks, buy their preferred. If you want price appreciation, which they're well overdue for coming out of this recession, um, you know, you'll buy the common equity, which will retain more of the capital. Certainly in the short term, they're now mandated to, but maybe in the intermediate term, they'll find this is a good thing because we can earn a high return on equity, particularly when, uh, which we've discussed in recent weeks, when the yield curve steepens, the 210 yield curve steepens this dramatically in such a short period of time coming out of a recession. The last two times that the yield curve has steepened this quickly as it has in the last month and a half was 2009 and 2003. And both of those instances uh, led to multi, multi-year massive rallies in banks and financials, and this time will be no different. Do we go a little lower before we go higher? I don't know, but uh, I can tell you one thing, we were adding this week, that's for darn sure. This is uh, a cyclical opportunity, in, and you buy the highest quality, and you don't even think about it. And, and that's actually one of the things I wanted to, well, we'll talk about patience in a second, but that's uh, Randy, I think he is the perfect person. So the Lord taketh away, but also the Lord giveth. And what they did this week was uh, they're loosening up the Volcker rule. So, you know, I made the, the somewhat of a off the cuff tweet uh, after the thing, after the stress test results, I said, food for thought. The Fed made the right decision to put a short term cap on what banks can pay out. It did not put a cap on what banks can earn. Intrinsic value will continue to accrue to shareholders to be paid over time. Dodd-Frank restricted earnings, but now is being loosened up. And this week, we got a taste of that, which is going to free up $40 billion of capital for Wall Street banks. Uh, it's called, it's a reversal of the inter-affiliate margin requirement for swap trades uh, that they expect to free up to $40 billion for Wall Street banks. Uh, and they're able to invest in venture capital. If you remember that they were able to trade the firm's capital, well, now they can't do that, but they can invest in venture capital funds. So a fund that owns, you know, five startups, you know, they're not startups anymore, but, you know, think back five years, today's version of, you know, Uber, Airbnb, that type of stuff. They can own that so they can earn outsized gains on um, fast growing companies that they have an edge because they have a banking relationship with and they know have a better idea of who might be the winners, et cetera. So that's um, the push pull. Everyone's talking about cuts and caps, which makes no difference because what matters is earnings power. And that's a function of the yield curves. It's a function of the PPP, which we're gonna see. 
the PPP fees were probably $20 billion in Q2 for that, that program. They got 1% to 5% origination fees. No one's talking about that. That's going to offset a tremendous amount of the um, credit reserves that they're taking for a normal recession. You get certain credit card defaults and uh, you know leeway on the mortgages, et cetera. So a lot of good things happen. We'll get more granularity, as I said, on Greta Wall Show. By the way, thank you to Greta Wall and Lindsay Oakley for having me on the show today. Uh, wall to Wall with Greta Wall. Definitely check that out. And um, so now moving on, what's happening to the market? In the first 35 days off the March lows, we rallied 35%, okay? And that was just a huge move. And based on the active investment managers and a few other indicators we look at, uh, most institutional managers missed it. A lot of retail people caught it. So that made Wall Street angry. They say, oh, those dumb retail people, but they actually got it this time. And since then, okay, you've seen the institution, once you hit that, then the institutions have started moving in. And guess what happened in the last 60 days? Uh, the market has gone now effectively nowhere. So you had this rally up to 29.54. We closed probably around uh, 3,000 today. Um, so you've had two months of sideways. This is very common out of a, um, a recovery rally, out of a recession. You get that steep V and then you consolidate, digest the gains, get your pullback, scare everyone into thinking you're going out to take the lows. And, um, and that's when you can, you can move higher. So, um, the quote that I wanted to get to was the Warren Buffett quote, which this is a perfect micro instance of that, which is the market doing nothing. And, and most people chased, so they missed all this, bought up here, and then every time you got a pullback, they got shaken out, then it went up, it went back, they missed it, then they bought up here, they got shaken out, then they missed it, they bought up here, they got shaken out. So this is just normal human behavior of what happens and regardless of what the headline is it's you know it always looks the same there's always a new headline to fill the problem um and this week it was the case spikes which by the way um we're, we'll we'll talk about that but the case spikes you know you're seeing the average age go, go from 65 down to 35. the way i think about this is number one i think people should wear masks when they go out in public and um are in crowded places that's just me We'll talk about why, and that's not a political thing. That's just what they did in 1918, and it's just the weaponry that we have in place. Our weaponry is going to get extremely more effective in the next three months and hopefully much sooner. We're going to get a silver bullet treatment or we're going to get a vaccine. I'm very confident in that, not betting against science. Uh, but in the meantime, the only weapon we have, if we want to be warriors and if we want to be patriots, the only way we can do that is to starve the virus by not giving it hosts. And that doesn't mean we stay indoors, you know, hiding in the closet under an Afghan. What we do is we go about our business like full, full tilt, unless you're really high risk. You do everything that you would normally do, except you wear a mask when you're in public. And if we had 330 million people minus the people that are high risk, so call it 270 million people, doing that, getting out, doing the things that they need to do. If you can do things by Zoom or work remotely, do it. But um, wearing masks, not only would we 
crank the GDP, get millions of people back to work, but we would starve the virus because if it wasn't able to penetrate and get more hosts that could spread it, it eventually just dies. That's the weaponry we have. And as warriors and patriots, that's the best thing we can do for the country, for GDP, for everything. So that's, that's an aside. Um, okay, quote of the day. The, the stock market is a device for transferring money from the inpatient to the patient. And this is where you earn your money. When you get impatient and make uh, unwise short-term decisions, getting shaken out of high-quality positions for the long-term. And if you miss your opportunity down here and you're not taking some advantage of what's up here and those companies that are still in this range, like the cyclicals, for the long term coming out of recessions, um, you know, it's it, it's understandable if you miss this, it won't be understandable if you miss this opportunity when you look back two years from now, because it'll have been so obvious that we would recover, we would eventually get a treatment. And uh, in the meantime, we would just push through it. I mean, China doesn't have any silver bullet and their numbers are phenomenal because they're three months behind us. Um, and there are many examples of that. So. Onto the article of the week. We've covered a lot of it, so we can uh, get to it. So I write these on Wednesday night. I post them out on Thursday morning. The market sold off huge on Wednesday, and I was talking about why the case spiked in the in those regions. Um, again, lower lower uh, ages. What, what's effectively happening while we wait for a treatment is we're getting mass exposure with low cost. And what do I mean by low cost? While the cases are going through the roof, the deaths are not at, at present. This doesn't mean go out without a mask. I just talked about masks. But it does mean that we're gonna have the, in a sense, the best of both worlds where we'll have more of society potentially immune more people will start to follow what we've been doing in the Northeast because we got hit the hardest in the tri-state area. So when you lose a lot of people, friends and family and friends of friends and family, you take things differently. So these states that are just getting hit now, they haven't experienced it. So they don't see the incentive to wear a mask just as we didn't in the beginning, which is why our cases went through the roof. Once we saw people dying, we put on our masks and guess what? our case count has dropped through the floor in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. And that's odd when you consider in New York how close people are together in New York City. It's just following these simple things to beat the invisible enemy. That's how you crush it. You starve it to death. When you don't have the weaponry in conventional war, it's you know guns, planes, uh, bombs, etc. Here, we just have to starve it with masks and not get, allow it to get new hosts. That's what we've done in the tri-state area. And I think as these new spikes in cases show some deaths, although the treatment has gotten so good that um, less people are dying from it and the age is lower, so those people have lower, lower morbidity rates, um, hopefully people will, will wear masks. And simultaneously, you have other things happening with the drugs, which we're going to talk about, that we might get the silver bullet beforehand. And just when we're getting used to the mask and winning and going out and doing our business and being, you know, getting things done, we'll have the silver bullet and then we won't even need masks once we have that. But, uh, you know, the scientists will let us know when, when we're at that point. We're not there yet. Right now, we got to use the weapon that we have. Um, so the case is spiked. The U.S. was going to put tariffs on the EU to 
make the Boeing Airbus playing field more level. So they were taxing us, we were gonna tax them. Markets don't like that. Uh, IMF downgraded the global growth rate from negative three to negative 4.9. Uh, that's, you know, the IMF would be the last place I'd ever want to go for a dinner party. I don't think they've ever made a positive revision in the history of their existence before the fact. They're just historically negative and conservative, which is fine. That's, you know, their job, I guess, is to be conservative. Um, but, you know, in the case of the U.S., they're down to negative 8% for 2020, which is about $1.6 give or take $1.65. Uh, we're now, which we're going to talk about with uh, money supply and stimulus aid and liquidity, we're going to be probably closer to 10 or $15 trillion to offset a less than $2 trillion problem. So as we get them, as we are warriors and we kill the invisible enemy by starving the hell out of it with our masks until we get a silver bullet in the form of a treatment or vaccine, um, we've got the stimulus aid and liquidity to handle the economy. So that was what brought the market down and it reverberated all week. So Monday, the futures were down when I did the article with Devic um, and Meta. Uh, then Wednesday, we had the same problem, the market sold off. And then today we had the bank, people worried about the banks and they were worried a lot about the uh, case spikes as well, even though the deaths are declining. And you know, people are saying, well, no, the deaths will show up in 14 days. And I, yeah, you'll see some deaths. By the way, there's, you're gonna see a spike in deaths. That's because New Jersey put a ton of um, deaths on the books that, they, that were backdated from like since December, anyone who died uh, that had like a flu-like symptom, they put into deaths. And most people know that, so they're not taking that death spike seriously. Um, but we'll see with these spiked regions, I, my guess is deaths will continue to come down because of the age of these new cases is much lower. The treatment ability of hospitals, the knowledge of doctors uh, has gone up dramatically. We know so much more in less uh, now than we did 60 to 90 days ago. Um, but that's that. So what I loved about this article, the Luke Combs, when it rains, it pours stock market. I named all these bad things that were happening, you know, and then New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut said, okay, any states that have spikes, if you want to come to New York, New Jersey, or Connecticut, you got to sit in quarantine for 14 days, and the market went crazy, didn't like that. Well, we did it to them. Uh, I, I mean, you know, they did, it, they did it to us, we did it to them, they did it, you know, if you were from New York and you went to Florida, you had to wait for 14 days. Now, if you're coming from Florida back to New York, you got to wait 14 days. You know, it's just the way it is. Um, and then the other thing that's actually a factor, though, that you have to keep an eye on from an economic perspective. I don't care about politically or socially. Everyone has different views. It, it's awesome. Whatever view, your views are, this is a, mar a markets podcast. We don't care about uh, views. But from an economic perspective, the market is afraid of a blue wave or a blue administration at the very least, but certainly a blue wave. And the polls have been weak as of late. Now, if you're on the Republican side, you say if there's ever a time for weak polls, get them done now so that you can you know, turn your momentum and ride it into the election. So the market is somewhat hopeful that maybe there'll be a turnaround. Why is the market worried about a blue administration, Democratic administration and or House and Senate is because they've made it clear 
that they want to raise taxes. If you raise taxes, you lower earnings. If you lower earnings, you probably lower not only the price of stocks and assets, you lower the multiple because growth will be slower. So it can have a compounding effect. Now you can say, well, it's the responsible thing to do. We got to pay for all this stuff. I, I'm not going to debate you either way. I'm just going to say that the market would prefer a, the stock market would prefer a uh, low taxes, lower regulation. Socially, all the other stuff, it's an open debate. But what the market wants in terms of earnings, it fears that possibility, which is showing up in the polls. It's early, but it's, it's, uh, it's a short-term trend that uh, the market is being watchful of, and we will continue to do that. Historically, the best case scenario is a gridlocked political environment. So if you got a Democratic president, you'd have either the House or the Senate would be Republican. If you got a Republican president, either the House or the Senate would be, um, you know, it's basically you have a check, check and balance. The biggest risk is if you get all Democrat, you know, House, Senate, president, all, or all Republican, House, Senate, Congress, and that's problematic. So the, the most bullish scenario is a hedge check and balance. It's effectively gridlock, so they can't get, you know, last thing you really want politicians to do is actually get too much done because just let business do what they need to do and stay out of the way is generally a helpful thing, not, you know, Wild West cowboys because that can lead to excesses, but uh, generally, you know, business knows how to, how to do what they do. And, uh, uh, that's a good thing. So gridlock is not a bad thing in Washington and the market's saying, what if it, there's no gridlock, what could happen? And that, that's putting some heft to the market this week. Um, okay. So basically Luke Holmes is in this video. You should definitely check it out. It, it, you know, it's a typical country song and you know, if you've been watching this for a while, you know, I like country, the guy, you know, he didn't lose his dog, but he, he you know, he, he wakes up, he has had a party, there's a you know hangover, his girlfriend comes in angry, and she walks out of the house and he's and he's feeling like down on his luck, he's lost everything, he's in bad shape, and it's at that moment that his luck changes instantly. Uh, he talks about walking, you know, he goes for a drive, he buys a scratch-off lotto ticket that she always said was a waste, and he wins from that, and then he, you know, buys his six-pack. I mean, it's amazing. These country songs are always about, you know, six-packs and tequila and all that stuff. I, I, you know, that's not the answer, you know, for anything. But anyway, he's having a good time, and then, um, you know, he calls in a radio station. He wins this vacation to Panama, and he doesn't have to see his uh, ex-future and mother-in-law anymore and uh you know meets a new girl at the the local restaurant and she goes on the free vacation so just when his all of his he thought all of his luck had ran out so just like we had this week cases spike blue wave uh tariff fighting global downgrades all these things happen something happens to to change the luck the stress test something happens and whether that's going to be a silver bullet don't bet against science um, you know, we have two things that came out this weekend. One is Gilead is going to start testing the inhaled version. You know, the thing about remdesivir, it's pretty clear now that it has a benefit, but the problem was you have to be in the hospital and it has to be, um, administered by needle, I believe. So, you know, it's like, am I going to go to a baseball game without a mask and not worry if I get COVID, I'll just 
go to the emergency room and get a needle, I'm not going to take that risk. But if there's an inhaled thing, if you get sick and you don't have to go to the hospital, that's a good thing. I'm not saying this is the silver bullet at all. I don't know. I know there are hundreds, as they say, hundreds of shots on goal, and a lot of them are very promising. I do know the concierge doctors in the tri-state area that are winning are still giving uh, ivermectin. I don't, I don't have enough data on that other than anecdotal. But there are a lot of things happening that are reflective of the lower death counts in addition to age declining, in addition to new knowledge, in addition to rolling people over and that type of thing, and we've seen all the, the news headlines, uh, treatments are getting better and better. But there's gonna come a day when we wake up, and hopefully sooner than later, where they're gonna say, we got something that works, and roll it out you know, instantaneously. The other thing that we saw was that steroid in Portugal, uh, and also Britain that's just been phenomenal for severe cases. That's why the death rate they believe is so low in Portugal, um, where uh, we actually just bought land there last year um, in Algarve. So we're excited about that. But uh, their death rate is, is extremely low. Uh, and this steroid, I guess, will start to be used in our treatment for severe, for severe person. We need something like when your fever spikes up, you take a pill and it knocks it out. And hopefully that'll be coming sooner than later. Then we can go to baseball games, hockey games, concerts, the whole story and, and rock and roll. And then we'll have a vaccine and then, you know, the mass, we can have a mask burning party, uh, hopefully the end of the year or early next year. Um, so, you know, I talked a lot about that on Cheddar. You can go through that. And what I'm pointing to here is just as Luke in the video thought that his girlfriend leaving him was going to ruin his life, um, it turned out to be the inflection point where his life changed. And similarly, most people think COVID's going to destroy the economy. And similarly, it may prove to be the best thing that ever happened for growth moving forward. What do I mean by that? Well, the negative narrative last year when we were going sideways, um, last year and a half rather, um, was that monetary policy is ineffective, it's pushing on a string, and if we don't get people globally doing fiscal policy on a large scale, we're gonna have stagnant growth. Well, this has brought more COVID and that emergency of COVID has brought more fiscal stimulus to bear in a shorter time than has ever happened in the history of the world. You know, uh, it was 12% of global GDP. It's now probably more and it's concentrated in the developed markets. And the big holdout for years and years and years because of their history was Germany. Uh, and they're the ones that are just cranking it out at 34% uh, of GDP, Italy cranking it. UK, Japan, uh, US, you know, we're doing a lot, but uh, we, we can do more. And by the way, we're going to get uh, another stimulus package. President Trump was talking, supports very generous coronavirus stimulus package, meaning um, they want to do, ideally in July, up to 40% infrastructure. And they want to do potentially another stimulus check for the people that need it the most. The checks they sent out, I believe, were $1,200 an adult and $500 for a child. So that would be, you know, $3,400 or so for a family of four at the lower income level. So those checks are really helping. And you're seeing it in 
uh, Robinhood accounts, okay, when some of it went there, but you're also seeing it in bank account savings. So as demand's coming back, people have so much money to go out to do things. Uh, some are spending it online, et cetera, but um, if we got another trillion, that's really gonna bump things up. Probably gonna be all that we need in terms of a final bridge until the economy just starts humming and money supply, um, we get the money su supply multiplier effect, which we're gonna talk about. So um, there's the fiscal stimulus. We would have never had that. Second thing is the M2 money supply stock. Um, the Fed increased their balance sheet about 3.6 trillion in the last crisis. It, the money supply increase alongside that, it was about double multiplier effect. So they um, increased the balance sheet by 3.6, but the money supply effect was, was about $6.5 trillion and that helped us recover the last time. We've already done about $3 trillion in the balance sheet this time, just in the first couple of months. And so if you add that with all the stimulus aid and liquidity that we've covered in previous weeks, you're looking at you know 10 to $15 trillion of money circulating in the economy. <laughs> Demand is coming back. Yeah, fits and starts. We saw it in Texas. They got to close the bars or you know, reduce the large crowds from 500 to 100. Same with Florida, et cetera. I don't want to belabor that issue. So yeah, that'll happen. But by and large, demand is increasing. The Northeast, our cases are plummeting. We are going out more. We are wearing masks when we go out because we saw how many people can die if you don't wear masks. And uh, we're able to do a ton of business now because we're doing it the right way. So uh, I think the whole, oh, by the way, the other thing, uh, Stephanie Link put out, which was really interesting, the five states that are having the biggest spikes that are slowing down their reopening are only 16% of GDP. The big GDP, tri-state area, parts of California, et cetera, um, they are the ones that are reopening and cranking and their cases are going down. So particularly in the Northeast, and that's the biggest part of GDP so um, while they're slowing in 16% of G GDP, they are accelerating in you know, greater than 50% of GDP, and that, that's a good thing as well. Um, but this week we were focused on what's wrong versus what, what's right. That can shift on a dime. Um, credit issuance, you know, the high yield issuance to date, this is a nice table that was posted, I guess, by the Wall Street Journal through someone on Twitter, at Sober Look. I guess they post a lot and they get recirculated. So I'll have to check out this handle and see what kind of charts they put out. Um, so basically year to date, you look at the issuance as of June 17th of the past years, we're at three, almost four times last year, uh, seven times, you know, and had the Fed not stepped in, the credit markets would have been closed and we would have seen bankruptcies and defaults left and right. Instead, what these companies have done has built an amazing war chest to get through this short-term contraction and they're well liquefied. Obviously, the marginal players are, you know, they're going to be bankruptcies, the small players that can't access the capital markets, but a lot of high yield issuance. So marginal players are getting funded to get them through and they're going to have all that dry powder to go to work, M&A, game will be on very, very shortly. So uh, that, that's good to see. No one would have expected this on March 23rd, the, the ability of companies to lend money to get through the short-term shutdown.
and that's attributable to the administration minutian and fed chair jerome powell have done a phenomenal job acting ahead of the curve to get the liquidity stimulus and aid before the plate crashed all over the floor they saw it falling they put down the trampoline and it saved the country we're going to deal with these spike ups we flatten the curve so we have capacity in the hospitals if we do get these flare-ups it will be dealt with but don't count out a silver bullet weaponry for our war against the invisible enemy it is on its way and in the meantime we have the mass when we go out of public starve the hell out of the virus let it die on its own in the meantime um cases versus deaths we already already covered and why that's happened so we have here um a couple pictures from 1918 and it's interesting if we could get buy-in you know as i said they lost 678,000 people in 1918 and yet the stock market corrected 33 percent and it never retested but guess what it did do exactly what we're seeing now you had that huge rally up and then you had this chop sideways chop before it took the next leg higher and you had the huge rally up sideways chop until it took the next leg higher so i think this is going to be in you know in 1918 to 1919 it took a year year and a half i think this is going to be dramatically compressed because there was nowhere to get to back to new highs there was nowhere we already did it in nasdaq nowhere near the amount of fed and um treasury and global coordination or information available at that time to compress it so uh this could be done in the famous warp speed uh that this type of recovery but this is you know this is kind of what we've been doing and that makes a lot of sense and that's why you get paid for patience uh stock market is a device to transfer money from the impatient to the patient and i'm sure there are a ton of people that not, you know sold here sold here sold here sold here definitely sold here they were going back down and they missed all of this and you can never get those 50 to 100 percent moves back you just can't um so consider ourselves lucky on weeks like this when we get to add franchises like a wells fargo like banks uh you know like these companies that are still down materially from their peaks and that over time will make new highs and will make people fortunes for buying high quality and just sticking with it through this patience through this fear through these headlines through this nonsense through time you know seeing other high flyers pass you up but in the long term boom so um this would be really nice if we got to a situation where we could get everyone on board with this war against the invisible enemy and 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 understand that our weapon at the moment is the mask to starve the hell out of the virus we could have baseball games again look at these look at these people sitting so close together i don't know if that's the answer i'll leave the scientists to debate that but they did okay considering they had basically no information back then uh look at this a boxing mask they're all sitting there with masks I think even one of the boxers is wearing a mask. The ref, what, uh, he's not following directions, but look at all these people. They're wearing their mask and they're able to go out and do these things. I mean, I'd go to a live concert if they said you have to wear, if they said everyone in the concert has to wear a mask to get in the door, just like you have to check your bag, you have to wear a mask. 
I'd go to a concert tomorrow. Maybe I'm crazy, but I, I would 100% do that if everyone in the place had to wear a mask and I'd stand right next to them. No, no problem here. But everyone would have to wear a mask. That's my, that's my view. Um, yours may be different. Scientists may be different. But I think that would change a lot and bring a ton of business to bear and probably, in some sense, accelerate um, levels of herd immunity because... The virus, there was a note out by uh, one of the major banks, I think it was Jeffries, but the analyst said that the case spiking is a positive because it's weakening the virus. There was some argument that he had and he had some science. I, di I didn't get to study it because I had a lot going on today. But if that's true, you know, even if it gets through some of the mass, but more people are exposed to a lesser virulency, uh, maybe that, that also helps with on the herd type of thesis. I don't know, but I know masks don't hurt. That's all I can say. And let's, let's just, uh, let's crush this thing. Um, now, onto the shorter term view is the sentiment was at an extreme level of pessimism this week, 24% bullish, 49% bearish. Historically, it pays you to be a buyer at these levels. Buyer, 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 buyer. You know, you look here, you can just trace it yourself. It pays to buy around the low 20s uh, um, versus being a seller. It pays to sell when you're well above the 50s on the bullish. So, well, it, it's an easier bet on the contra buy signals than it is on the overbought because overbought can just keep pushing higher and we may see that coming out of this rally you know this sentiment will get up to 50 and the market will just keep going that that can happen but we're nowhere near and we're nowhere near on the cnn fear and greed you know we got to zero effectively in march but we have not gotten anywhere near euphoria it only came in at 47 it's probably lower today um, you know, at 80, 90, 100, I'd start to trim, I, you know, in the short term, not in my long term holding, but I definitely start to trim where there's euphoria. We're, we're nowhere close. So you get got to just get back to the transferring mechanism that the stock market is transfers money from the impatient people that can't wait it out to get to euphoric levels to lay it off to the people who are getting excited at the short term top um, to the patient people who can stick through these type of headlines stick through two months of sideways zero progress in the market and win and use these pullbacks to buy high quality stocks for the long term. Uh, National Association of Active Investment Managers was up uh, this week, but this prints only once a week. So my guess is it's back down to 70 after Wednesday and Fridays. We'll take a look at that for next week. And, um, you know, I talked a lot about banks here for the message of the week. I still am of that view. And I think as it settles out, sometimes like you see a bad energy report and energy sells off and then a day later it's up or Jerome Powell talks on a Wednesday, the market goes down and then by Friday the market's rallying. I think we're going to have a similar thing. Certainly Monday night, greater granularity of the stress test, allowing people to uh, digest and comment on it over the week. Hopefully this helps people understand that you know, just because they can't pay it out, you as the owner, that intrinsic value is still accruing in that basketball. They're, they're still yours. What's the difference if they pay it to you today or, you know, in six months, you know, that air, the earnings is still there making the, the pie bigger and bigger and bigger. So um, uh, I think that's going to be a very positive thing. And I just closed out saying 
I wish you and the market a Luke Combs style happy outcome uh, after a tough couple months for the country, you know, fighting the virus, fighting the invisible enemy. And we will prevail quickly if we take all the necessary actions to win with the weapons we have. And I think we're gonna be surprised with how quickly we get quote unquote weapon of mass destruction against our enemy, the virus, which would be a silver bullet treatment would be the best and followed by a vaccine that works, which uh, even the most pessimistic people believe will happen by early 2021. And the most optimistic people think it'll happen by Q4 2020. So uh, to be determined. Next, we want to cover um, this was very interesting. And I covered this in Greta's segment. This is the, and this is Sentiment Trader at Sentiment Trader. They put out some good stuff. Um, follow them on Twitter if you're on Twitter. Every time the value, growth to value ratios 14 month RSI is at these levels, we're seeing what happens. You get a reverse reversal, meaning value, i.e. cyclicals, start to outperform growth, i.e. tech. So if you look at this spot, and you'll see the years, like I discussed on Greta's thing, are all slowdown years or recession years, and that's when cyclicals outperform. It's just part of the cycle that they outperform. So uh, here, to be determined, this is extended, and usually the more extended it gets, the bigger the reversal. Uh, here, it wasn't as extended, but you got the reversal into value and cyclicals. Here, same thing, reversal from growth. Here, huge reversal because you had a huge extension. Huge extension, probably a bigger reversal. We'll see. It could get more extended before it reverses. But, you know, this is the ratio, okay? This is the ratio that, that things start to change. 1987, remember, recession. Early 90s, remember, recession. Uh, early 2000s, remember, recession. Early uh, 2008, re recession. That's when cyclicals outperform coming out. That's the recovery. That's why banks are so important for the recovery. That's why the Fed works to steepen the yield curve. That's why banks went crazy the last time the yield curve ste steepened this much in 2009 and 2003, multi-year rallies uh, after the steepening, which we've just had. So uh, this is a great chart. Uh, check them out at Sentiment Trader. The next is... Um, Number nine, economic data that I covered. I didn't go through on Greta's call. I'm gonna just, I'm not gonna go through all of them. Rig, rig counts came down just a little bit this week. Again, they're down some 90% from the peak in 2014. All that supply coming off, no major investment in the last five years. The next three to five years, you're gonna see these oil companies cook. The next three to five days, I, I have no idea. But um, that is good news and we covered personal, personal spending was up 8.2%. Consumer sentiment was at 78, up from 72 last month. Durable goods we covered uh, plus 15.8. Manufacturing PMI near expansion 49.6. New home sales up 16.6%. So a lot of great sequential, a lot of beating data this week, and that's a good thing. Uh, this was the, the steroid we talked about with Portugal, already covered that. This is the high frequency trade, uh, high frequency data that everyone's looking at. Um, this is restaurant bookings. You're seeing those come off dramatically off the bottom. 
you're seeing uh, TSA checkpoints. I, I don't have the exact number this week, but it looks like we're getting close to 600,000. Maybe we hit that this week. It just keeps going up. Uh, Apple driving directions, again, back to pre-pandemic levels. Uh, foot traffic again. So these are just some of the things you can see. Uh, hoarding groceries at the supermarket is plummeting. More people are going out, less people are scared. This was that New Jersey death, death spike that I told you about where they booked all the deaths from December with flu-like symptoms as COVID deaths. So most people are discounting that. And then today was more realistic in line with trend. Um, number 12, if you're on the podcast, if we run out of time, just go to hedgefundtips.com and watch the last, fast forward in the YouTube video, watch the last five minutes. I'll try to finish on time. Baltic Dry Index, um, this is cool. This is a global trade, the pricing for the shipping, and you're seeing it totally recover not just to pre-pandemic but it's cooking now the demand is there as countries around the world recover uh similar type of situation in this multi-year rally similar type of situation coming out of 2011 so a lot of good things happening there um now the trump stimulus we covered and finally um the ask me anything question of the week from Brian D emailed me. Brian D said, question for your video cast. Tom, question for your video cast. This quarter has been a very po very positive for stocks, e.g. NASDAQ 100 is up 37% or so since the beginning of April quarter. And uh, quarter end portfolio rebalancing is thus likely to be a net negative for equities. However, the extent of participation by large players is unclear. You mentioned many had stayed on the sidelines and had to chase. Uh, are you expecting a portfolio rebalancing sell-off next week? And is there somewhere that retail investors can access, uh, access aggregate portfolio positioning information? Appreciate your analysis every week. Always interesting and insightful. B. Uh, thanks for sending this in, Brian. This is a really good question. Um, and CNBC had a decent answer this week. And the answer is... It's a mishmash from all different banks reporting all different stuff. The most important document I look at for institutional positioning every month, which I cover every month, is the Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey. If you didn't see this month's survey, just go to the website and there is a search bar here on the right side. Just put in uh, Global Fund Manager Survey and you'll find that. That's the most important thing. Now. You also have the National Association of Active Investment Managers, so you see what their positioning is like. And then banks put out notes, so it's mostly they put it out to institutions, but every now and then, that you, well, you can get that on a Bloomberg terminal, or you can get it, um, some of the news outlets will publish that if you're paying attention. And usually, I'll publish that in our daily read. So if you're on the daily newsletter, I put out like 15, 20, 10, five key reads a day, and oftentimes that data is embedded there and you can access it for free. So go to, in this case, um, to give you specifics and finish on time, there's an article on cnbc.com and the title is, there's a wave of selling estimated to be in the billions that's about to hit the stock market. And it goes through all the reports of the different banks. Goldman was betting on one thing from estimates ranging from 35 billion out of equities into bonds, 35 billion to 75 billion. My guess though, is a lot of managers are gonna want window dressing because you know, looking at the data, a lot of institutional sold at the bottom and didn't get back in in time. So they're gonna wanna show that they have some equities after a 35, 40% rally. 
Um, I found these to be completely unreliable as far as when one asset has moved so much in a particular quarter and everyone says, well, people are going to rebalance out of it. it. There's very rarely a high correlation because there's so much money sloshing around anyway. And you don't know what in international managers are doing on a currency basis. So I, you know, just like the uh, other thing that we talked about um, with the with the options that that gentleman kept asking about, I wouldn't rely on it. I would look at it. It's just another data point that you keep up in your mind. But you got to make decisions beyond a week. If you don't make decisions on a weekly basis, long term basis, guys, they handed you some opportunities this week with these headline sell offs. There'll be more to come over the summer. Take advantage. Listen in. Follow the information. I hope you found this helpful this week. Uh, grateful you listened in. We'll see you back next week. Same time, same place. Thanks for listening in.